0: Jordan, of course, was like, Who? What's going on? And I'm like, You know, Nanny and Orphan Maker, those awesome characters that everyone loves. X Men, X Men.
1: In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for the season two finale, episode 75, is Marvel's own Zeb Wells. Most recently for X-Fans, the writer of Hellions, also the writer of the noted New Mutants volume three run that I talk about a lot on this podcast to the point where some of you put the phrase Zebwell's New Mutants on your Cerebro bingo cards, which I found endearing. Zeb is now writing Amazing Spider-Man, which is one of the biggest gigs in Big 2 comics. So Mazeltov to Zeb. Zeb, how are you today? Thank you so much for being my guest.
0: I'm doing very good. I'm glad to finally be here after you sent all your minions after me. Um, I did.
1: I sent yeah. lots. I sent Teeny after you. I sent Ben Percy after you. I did... I, I was forceful. Because here's the thing, <laughs> you were on your way out of the office. And I was like, this is the perfect opportunity to talk about Hellions, which is my favorite. I mean, maybe my favorite Marvel book of the last like decade. I mean, it's really, <laughs> I really loved this book. <laughs> awesome. And, love uh, to that. You know, Hellions and Excalibur were really my two favorite Kirk Cohen. Awesome, yeah. I love everything that's coming out right now. But yeah, yeah. those two books were sort of made for me in a lab. And then the way I'm a lifelong Betsy Braddock fan, but I also, I often joke about this and Fabian Niciesa so thought it was very funny. But as a 13-year-old gay kid on, on .net's forums in like 2000, my username was Revanche. So, you know, <laughs> the long, complex history between Betsy love and it. Canon is the real big thing for me. So the way that those two characters intersected and wove around each other in these two books was for me as someone who, I mean, the body swap happened when I was one year old and I've been waiting for someone to fix it for my entire life. I thanked Jim Zub profusely that year at New York Comic Con. He was like, yeah, I never liked that either. I'm like, you shouldn't, it's awful. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think you and Tini really untangled an impossible Gordian knot as best as you could. And I think both those characters are in the best position they've ever been, which is really exciting. That aside, we're not here to talk about con. I actually just did a con an episode that will be up by the time people are hearing this with Fun. the cosplayer Caroline Bird, which I'm excited about. Oh, yeah. I know her from Twitter, from X twitter yeah. She's a delight. I was like, I feel like an Asian-American ex-Marine Psylocke cosplayer is exactly who should be my guest for this episode. That's like... <laughs>
0: awesome. Awesome. I'll check it out. Yeah. That's fantastic.
1: So I've already covered her, but I'm sure she'll come up. Similarly, I am most famous on the internet probably as Madeline Pryor's defense attorney. So there's going to be a good amount of, I mean, much like you, I think based on all of your work, Inferno is a story that I deeply imprinted on at a very impressionable age. And I've just, it's never let me go. One of the things I talk about with your new moon I'm like the only person more obsessed with the Inferno crossover than me, Zab Wells, you know, because I wouldn't have even thought to bring up the babies. You know what I mean? But we're here to talk about Eleanor Murch, newly (laughs) christened the nefarious nanny the second nanny not to be confused with magneto's fetish robot nanny from the 70s although i have to assume that wheezy created this nanny inspired by that nanny because they have a very similar mo but if you're confused listeners because there's two nannies one is a robot one is just a lady this is the lady and peter the orphan maker her favorite boy most of the time two characters that you took from obscurity really to top level status in the Marvel. I mean, Nanny outsold the Avengers. The phrase (laughs) Nanny outsold has become a refrain on this podcast because during Ten of Swords, Hellions did outsell the Avengers pretty handily. Before we dig into Hellions and Nanny and her lost boys and girls, I'd love to talk a little bit about you, about your Origin story with the X-Men, your history with these characters, how you came to write them professionally, all that good stuff.
0: Yeah, I got into comics right around when Inferno was kicking off. And so you talk about things in printing on you, you don't really get to choose what was going on when this world <laughs> first grabs you. You know, mm-hmm. you talk about Nanny and Orphan Maker being obscure characters, but like when I got into the thing, when I started reading it. They're all over it. Yeah, they, that, they're, they're in this issue. They're in this.
1: That's their big run of issues.
0: Yeah, yeah. And like I was saying, you don't get to choose what's going on when you get sucked into this stuff. So for me, yeah, when I brought them up to possibly be on Hellions, Jordan, of course, was like, who? What's going on? And I'm like, you know, Nanny and Orphan Maker, those awesome characters that everyone loves. But that just, you know, that just wasn't how everyone else saw it. But I got into it. I, and I, I remember really, really loving Excalibur.
1: Mm-hmm, that was um, my back, favorite. Back too. in that time. And, you know, classic, yeah.
0: Alan Davis, you know, Alan Davis, made one of the best comic book artist ever. ever. Yeah, everything in it is beautiful. All the beats are hit. All the emotions leap off the page. And that just grabbed my brain and pulled me in. And I just wanted to know. Everything that was going on because those Excalibur issues had, those Inferno issues were very emotional in Excalibur. Mm -hmm. Um, and Megan turned into a version of the
1: Goblin Queen. Right, Megan is an empath, so she absorbs immediately the emotions of the Inferno and becomes like, it takes a while for Ilyana and Madeline to be corrupted slowly over time. Megan, because she's just like an open nerve with no mental defenses to emotion is just like, I'm demonic now, oops, like, oops everybody I'm a demon, sorry (laughs) I'm gonna put Brian in bondage gear and make him kneel by my throne, which is Just like, I mean, I was yeah. I was intrigued. I was, no, you know. I,
0: looking back on it now, I remember reading all of Inferno before I did the New Mutants run, and you know, it's a complex story. Sure, <laughs> wow. yeah. I think it's
1: the most ambitious crossover they ever did, really.
0: Yeah, and when it hits you at a certain age, you're not asking yourself, "Oh, is this working? Is this not working?" It just gets in. It just gets in to your psyche, into your person. So. I don't even know if when I started writing, if someone asked me if I wanted to write an Inferno story or a reference Inferno, I don't even know if I would have said I did, but that it's just in me. That story is mm-hmm. deep, deep in me and so connected to my love of the X-Men.
1: The stuff you come in with, I often say, especially the characters you come in with, i found that the student class, that's the first student class that people read, those are often the characters that they're just really married to. And for me, certainly my dad, and people are now checking this box off on their cerebral ribbon cards. My dad's an X-Men collector. So I grew up with all of the back issues in the house. So like awesome. I'm... Born in '88, but my tastes in X-Men are like ten years older than they should. Because be. you started earlier. I started, in- but reading yeah. the, like, the Claremont stuff up through the '80s, yeah. as much of it as we had in back issues, and then the trades started coming out when I was a little older. Inferno comes out when I'm 12 in trade for the first Great. time, and my mom let me buy it at Borders because it was X-Men, and my dad was just like, "Ooh." inferno huh you know and um (laughs) and by the time he noticed i was already halfway through it so there wasn't much to be done and now i'm a homosexual who defends madeline prior to the death on a podcast yeah that (laughs) you know that'll happen to you but it's because like if you're 12 years old and you cry over iliana killing herself to end the inferno and regress herself to childhood and erase herself so that a different her could be happy like that's just a character you're going to care about probably for the rest of your life because you just, Absolutely. Yeah. when you see, I mean, the Madeline thing that's the most shocking. I was just talking about this with somebody recently because Vita is going to be writing Madeline. I'm really excited about that because Vita is one of my favorite people going right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the scene where Sinister asks her to like summon forth a childhood memory. And she tells the story of Annie Richardson getting hit by that car. And Sinister's like, that's a great story, except that happened to Jean Grey. I, as someone who had never read that bizarre adventure story by Chris Claremont, I didn't know. So, like when Maddie right. tells the story, we're both shocked. Like Madeline's shock is my shock. Like her objection to this is my objection because I've been reading her as like Scott's wife. Like I liked this character, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Like I'm really into that. Like Maddie and Havoc, I love them. So that's like Hellions was a real roller coaster for me on that level, also, but in a, in a great way. I really just do think that's where you lock in. If like Danny and Sam and Ilyana and all of those kids better, like if those are your kids, they're your kids. If you came in with Gen X, a lot of people are like diehard with that class. The Academy X kids who are way after my time, I simply don't get it. And people yep. badgered me into reading it all so I could do episodes about them. And now I kind of get it somewhat, but they're never going to be my kids, you know?
0: They're never going to get deep. It's hard. What I find such a bummer now it's so hard to like love things unabashedly now in my yeah. old age, you know, like to really just to not question, Oh, how was this made? Or is this What's right? the narrative? Right. Yeah, like, what, yeah. 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 What's the quality of this writing? Is this good? Is this bad? Blah, 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 blah. It's, there's a certain magical age where you just accept things and you love them unabashedly and you don't question them and they just get into your psyche. They get in, they can move you so deeply. And I think that's, what we're probably all chasing now i i i would i'm just trying to write stuff that maybe makes someone feel something close to one of those mm-hmm. deep strong feelings that i had when i was a kid that really affected me
1: I think you've achieved that. I mean, I hear from new readers a lot doing this show. And Hellions was a real gateway drug for a lot of people because the characters were characters with less historical baggage a lot of the time. So it was easier for people to just jump in. And I think in particular... Conan as Psylocke has become a really big character because of this book and there are a lot I mean I love it because now there are all of these new readers who only know Betsy as Captain Britain and only know Psylocke yeah, as yeah, Conan, which is great and it's great like it's it's exactly what you would want which is there's a whole generation now for whom that's going to be like a curiosity rather than yeah 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 30 years of weirdness and that character I think is a real breakout. Like if you told me that Scalp Hunter was going to have the cultural cachet that he now does as Grey Crow, I would have thought that was crazy. I, was yeah. I remember when this book was announced and if I wasn't already like, oh, I like Wells as a writer, it would have been like, huh, like kind of a hard sell. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'd love to talk about that. I mean, how did yeah. it, how was the process of pitching Hellions? What was that like? Because you came in a little bit Midstream in the Crecohen wave, it was yeah. like a second wave book.
0: Yeah, Hickman and House of X, Powers of X, got me to double down on coming back to comics. I had moved to New York because my wife had gotten a job out there, and we had moved there. And I, Heidi had just, Gardner of Saturday yeah, Night Live, for of for Saturday Night, Night Live, not aware. Yeah.
1: I know you're writing Ben Riley, but I feel like you two would do a killer, like, Peter and Mary Jane story in that, oh, yeah. like, <laughs> that 90s so mode fun. when, like, Mary Jane's chain smoking and they're, like, fighting over yeah. her nude scenes on the soap opera or whatever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That'd be great. laughs>
1: but so you had moved to New York.
0: I was having lunch with Nick Lowe and I started doing, just like, an I did an Ant-Man miniseries and but I was just kind of having fun, you know, and then... Mm-hmm. I had missed all of Hickman's Secret Wars stuff. I w- that was sort of during my five years that I took off. And I, had, I was working on my show, Super Mansion, and just didn't have a lot of time to read comics. It was kind of stepped away. So I, I didn't know what I was getting into, but I saw, <laughs> like, it, it, obviously with House of X, Powers of X, someone was doing something. Right. And then I read it and I was like, oh, no, someone's really doing something. Like, this is exciting. Someone is taking a very big swing here. And doing it really well. This would be exciting to work in this world. And because I thought that the world that was built was super complex, but also I respected the writing of House of X and Powers of X so much that I knew I do, no- need, I
1: do need to stop you because I know the oh, yeah. listeners are going go, it's powers of 10. Powers of 10, <laughs> 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 that's right. And you know what? He's so proud of that. He He's really so prou- is. He's and so proud. so I can hear the listeners going, 10, it's 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's
0: no. 10 of swords. It's yep. not X of swords. Tini was proud of that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very proud. <laughs> they love it when people slip up. They love the writing. I love the you- writing. So I knew that like, there's no way that I could phone it in. Not that I'm a phone it in guy. But I was like, oh. But you wanted to I, make something special. Yeah. I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to work in this world and not swing for the fences because you're coming out of, of Powers of 10 and House of X. It's one of the best X Men stories told in the last ever. 20 years. I yeah. would say yeah, ever. Yeah, ever. Of course. I think um, it's
1: like Claremont, Morrison, and now. Yeah.
0: You know, totally. So you, yeah, like- you have those three worlds, and this is one of them. It was a seismic shift. And mm-hmm. so I was like, I would love to be involved in that. I was like, wait, wait a minute, I, maybe I could be. Like, what's saying I couldn't be? So we had a, a Marvel summit, and I got invited to it because I had done Ant Man and Spider Ham. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think you usually get invited to the Marvel Creative Summit for doing Ant Man and Spider Ham. But I lived in New York, you know. There was no hotel, or right? You know, might so as I just, well. I got to just swing. He's green, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Hickman was there, so and I hadn't met him before. But I, I cornered him on like the second day and basically just begged him to, to I think they had this, the X-Men Summit the next week. And I was like, get me in there. I'll, let me just be a fly on the wall. And he was like, well, I, I, I'm not really in charge of that, you psycho. But uh, <laughs> if you, if you want to do an X-Book, we can talk. And so then we started going back and forth and pitching. So I was kind of happy that it, it was kind of fun because it was something that I, I kind of made happen. You know, I wanted mm-hmm. it and I got in there and I made have it because I was passionate about the whole world. And what I really liked about it is that it wasn't simple. It wasn't clean. Nothing about that world he created was built to, to be easy answers or this right. will be simple. He wanted to question everything about the X-Men. You were supposed to question the leadership, the quiet council you're not supposed to take any of this as given or take anyone's intentions as given. I kind of liked how in building a society, not everyone gets to be good. Not everyone gets to be, there's just a bunch of trade-offs morally that you have to make in order to just get these, all these people to be a cohesive whole.
1: It's the Le Guin thing, right? I mean, it's the ones who walk away, like, because something has to be suffering in order for this utopia to exist. Right. We throw Sabretooth in the pit at the beginning, but also Hellions, I think, more than any other book, Way of X then tackled it sort of more directly, like, let's look at the actual policies. But Hellions in the earlier stories was the book that really said, okay, but there's Got to be problems here, right? Like, if we're giving, every, yeah. I mean, the empath problem that's established in yeah, the yeah. first issue is something that I talk about a lot on this podcast. Like, I love Celine, she's just an endlessly compelling character to me. She's also unbelievably evil and has killed millions and millions of people over centuries but if that's her power and she was born a parasite who has to kill people to survive what does that do to you morally who are you as a person and empath was a great i mean the title initially of hellions confused because i'm a big fan of the og hellions from the 80s so like i love tower and roulette and cat's eye the use of the name i was like huh because initially it's sort of sinister makes a joke about this in the issue too it almost felt like this should be marauders and hellion should be emma and her people on the boat but of course by the end of hellions you understand that it's been emma's team all along yeah, that's, yeah 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 that, that's the twist but empath as a grounding agent for the themes really made a lot of sense because he is almost the first case of that in the franchise like here is a person who is just unwell but he's unwell because his power has made him that way and so if you're giving all of these people amnesty characters like Celine, characters like empath like what how can they be a functional member of society can they like can they contribute because we can't just lock them up for being who they are right if we're accepting that mutation is intrinsic and it
0: becomes unfair quickly because Mister Sinister is worse than all of them.
1: Oh, way worse but, than all of them! But he
0: has something they need. And, yes, and and that's politics. That's politics, and we have to deal with that. And and I don't, I never, ever got even a whiff that Hickman wanted to shy away from any of that stuff. He loves that stuff. He loves- no, I
1: think it's essential to the whole project. He wants to yep. question the idea of mutation. Period. Like the the question of okay, this is a minority allegory. Here's all this really powerful stuff about that. At the same time, like Mr. Sinister is a eugenicist. Like, is he right to be a eugenicist? Like, there's lots. you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. The Sinister of it all is very like Operation Paperclip. What compromises do we make with the enemy, with war criminals, with people who are constantly committing atrocities against man and God, but like, oh, again, they have a technology or an insight or an innovation that we need. And that is just how the world works. I mean, Moira is probably Hickman's ultimate triumph on that level. Because it's funny, The I don't know if you had a chance to read Excess of Wolverine, but Ben Percy has driven her all the way through the wall of just like, she's, I've been calling her girl boss Cameron Hodge. Like she's fully <laughs> the scariest X-Men villain. No, I like can't all wait all to read it. Yet. I'm
0: sure he he killed that.
1: And people are like, this feels abrupt. I'm like, does it go back to Hoxpox actually? Because yeah. I get that we know her as like our mom, who's our friend from back in the day. But from the minute Hickman starts writing her, she's about the most sinister character you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just a ticking time bomb that was sitting under Krakoa for three years until Inferno blew it up. Yep. You go back to House of X when she and Charles meet with Magneto, she's wearing Bastion's outfit. It's in a different color. Right. But it has <laughs> right. the chevron at the top. <clears throat> like he's he was never hiding. Her first instinct when she was like, mm, I don't like being a mutant was genocide. That's a great idea. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's one of those things where it's right there. And I think that Hellions was a book And this is why Conan, I think, was a really great central character for, I mean, Alex and Conan are sort of the two protagonists of the book. With Alex, it's that Alex has always been the character who goes, what, what's happening? What's going on here with like X-Men stuff? He doesn't get it. He doesn't really want to be an X-Men. He hates being a mutant. He hates his power because it's dangerous. Every woman he ever loves is like possessed by doubles and turns into a monster and has to be killed. So it's like, it never goes well for him. And then Conan is someone who's been dead for 30 years of publication and just shows up and is like, I don't give a shit about Charles Xavier. Like none of these people mean anything to me. So justify to me why I should care about this or about you or why I should respect your opinion. And I think that those two, like that very logical, logic it out for me. Like explain why I should listen to Magneto or Charles or Essex or Emma Frost. Like who should I be listening to? make a case, versus Alex's, which is entirely emotionally based and is just like an extended trauma response to the 30 years of indignities that have been heaped upon him since the siege perilous, you know. <laughs> I, I think that that was a great way to start <clears throat> questioning the orthodoxy of Kurt in a way that characters like Scott and Jean are simply aren't going to do overtly, they like started their X-Men team because they're like, we're gonna make a political state. But like, just, hey guys, what's up here? What's going on is a more human question that the bigger characters sometimes don't ask.
0: Yeah, and I think that in choosing characters like Grey Crow and Nanny and Orphan Maker and Impath, it was dealing that through a lens of like, just as the readers have heard again and again, when they saw those characters on the book, they were like, I do not care. Like, I do the not, hell is this? I do, right. I do not care. And I think that worked to the advantage thematically because, okay, Mr. Sinister's a popular character. Right. Okay, yeah. So even as readers were kind of invested in him, well, let's make it work. Let's make it work with him being on the Quiet Council because it's fun. You know, right. it's interesting. Yeah. It, it, it's dramatic. But these characters that are just killers and then with Nanny and Orphan Maker, killers that we don't even kind of like that
1: much no they're just horrible yeah Yeah. (laughs) gray crow is most famous for murdering children on panel like (laughs) with a machine gun like (laughs) these are these are truly hateful characters and the most famous heroes that you've got in the book are the less famous Summer's brother yes. and the Psylocke who isn't the Psylocke that people know. So it's like, you are both also ran X-Men in a sense. It's like Havoc and, and a great, cool. And yeah, did you know you were gonna have those characters? Well, it was it was just at a certain point because, you know, there were certain
0: characters that I thought I had cachet that would have worked on the team, say like mm-hmm. a Omega Red, you know, who has some, sure. um, like if you saw him on a cover, you might be like, oh, this is cool. I remember but that you know, guy.
1: Jim Lee drew that person. Yeah, like, Jim yeah. Lee drew that
0: guy. <laughs> but this was like, like you said, it was like a second wave book. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of characters were spoken for, right? And so with Havoc and Conan, it was like, well, people know these characters, and they'll they'll
1: be good on the cover. You know, we need oh, some characters. Well, Jim Lee's Silock design on the cover is helpful. Yes, yeah, is that's helpful. like you know that Jim Lee drew that, yeah. like that yeah. you know, yeah. in
0: 1991. You remember? Yeah. It's funny you bring that up because I was such a big Punisher fan when I was a kid. What was I, a little psycho? Like, why was I into that? that you know that, But then I remember, oh, Punisher War Journal was coming out when I started reading comics mm-hmm. and Jim Lee was drawing it. One of the best comic book art, maybe the best comic book artist, well, Alan Davis, Jim Lee.
1: Of I course I, I like that Punisher. I stuff on Uncanny better. I'm a big really? Sylvester hat. Yeah, I mean, like, I Silvestri's think- Silvestri
0: is great. Silvestri is great in a world where Jim Lee is not, doesn't exist. Yeah he would be the apex
1: for me the emotion of like a Paul Smith or a Mark Silvestri is yeah. not what I want from my Men comics I mean I think Jim I Lee is that. a breathtaking artist and changed the whole medium but it became much more pose driven yeah. and action driven than the soapy I'm gonna cry over here in a corner or like I think of, yeah, yeah, yeah. again I think of that page where Sinister tells Madeline what she is or what she is to him. Yeah, yeah. When she says, I won't be controlled by you. I won't be condemned by you. And Silvestri does that series of panels where she's chained up and she rears her head back and it just whites out to just her mouth and her eyes. And it's like all of that really close up. And Jim Lee is just not that kind of artist. Like he's a a different kind of artist. And there's, it was perfect, obviously for the moment that he arose in. So, um, but for me, that 80s stuff is just like, the P, yeah, that like Smith, Silvestri, Davis, some of that John Romita Jr. stuff, like it's just that's X Men to me forever in my brain.
0: Totally, and I think you're we're getting towards something that is another reason that I think Hellion's connected with people, which was Stephen Segovia's art.
1: Gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. gorgeous.
0: At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I write or how I write the characters. If you don't feel it when you look at them, then it's not going to work. But The first time you see Gray Crow on the beach
1: Mm -hmm. in Hellion's
0: number one—that's what I was just thinking of. Yeah, you can, you, you. Oh, okay. Well, we know this guy has killed a lot of mutants. Well, you introduce
1: him with the resurrected Morlocks, who you know, and Tommy the Morlock is also like one of the most brutal issues of. I talk about that issue a lot on this podcast because (laughs) you read that when you're eleven, you don't fucking forget. No, yeah, exactly, Um, exactly, and you know. he's right there. He's the one taunting her as Harpoon murders her in the street. And it's like, well, okay, like we're doing this. We're doing, you know, but the romance between him and Conum that plays out over these 18 issues, which I mean, first of all, it's hard to get me to give a shit about straight people in a comic book. It's just not my, I (laughs) I, I just don't care that much most of the time. (laughs) I'm much more invested in, like, Chris Claremont had these two women look at each other in an interesting way. Like, that's much more, that was, as a little gay kid, I was like, I'm fascinated by this. I'm staring deep into whatever this could be. But that relationship, I was sold, I mean, it won a bunch of polls last year as, like, best romance in X-Men comics of, like, the last whatever. People really love it. And I do think part of it is that the way you wrote both of them was, I think, stellar. You really revolutionized both those characters and made them really big deal characters that I think they will remain. But also Steven Segovia's close facial expression yeah. panels on them.
2: Yeah. I'm thinking absolutely. of
1: the scenes on the beach that sort of bookend the series, but also the sequence when Kanan kills the rights AI. Yeah. And she's like, you don't have to do it. You don't have to be the killer this time. I will do it because you think they're real or whatever. He's yeah, like, yeah. do you think they're real? And she goes, oh, I have to think they're real. Yeah, because <laughs> He doesn't even know why she's saying that. She's saying that because yeah, of her yeah, yeah. non-fungible daughter on Sinister's <laughs> blockchain. That moment was when I was like, Oh, this is like a real thing. Or when she cries out for him in Murder World and like the facial yeah, expression. Yeah. Really good. But even the fill-ins, like I thought Carmen Carnero did incredible. Awesome, awesome. I was work. so lucky. So that's lucky. I mean, what a fill-in to get, my God. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: But yeah, I mean, I think it's in the eyes. It's in like the set of their jaws. Yes. It just does really... He makes. And I can't
0: write that. I can't yeah, write that. You, you need know? the artist for that. You need,
1: yeah. And
0: that was so much fun to like write those scenes, get the art back, but then see where I could pull back or find a different avenue or like maybe the look was enough. There were just a lot of times where the facial expression was enough or I could pull back on what the dialogue was saying
1: Mm -hmm. because of
0: what what Stephen had done.
1: With those two characters in particular, they don't say what they're feeling a lot of the time. So it was really essential to have someone who could communicate with a look what they're thinking. That would have just fallen so flat
0: if he hadn't nailed that so yeah really lucked out in that regard because I'm with you like thinking about those I don't know I just love the soap opera of x-men I love the emotional pain of it the longing the, yeah just the, the sadness that everyone has the trauma it's just so good
1: I mean Hawksbox is also what brought me back because I'm a lifelong X-Men fan, like I said, but the decimation really upset me. I was just like mm-hmm. really bummed about because yeah, I thought yeah, the minority yeah. aspect got really lost there. And yeah. that was what was so important to me as like a gay reader. Yeah. Story. It's like, you know, it's sure. like I, I care about this stuff, right? It just felt like it got really far away from what I had loved and became much more of a, like an action driven we're all shooting at each other all yeah. the time kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just not... Actually, I often say that the two Decimation era things I really love are You're a New Mutants* and Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy, which I yeah, think is yeah. absolutely brilliant. Great. And Mike was kind enough to come on the show uh, to talk about Frenzy, which was a lot of fun. Because awesome. um, I think he did for her what you kind of did for Conan and Grey Crow and, yeah. Annie and all of these characters here, which is give them a bigger stage than they'd had before as villains, because the thing about being an antagonist is that you can only have so much subjectivity. But the X-Men franchise has always been about, well, but wait, is this, like, ever since Claremont did it to Magneto, it's kind of like, is there something deeper here? But actually, even going all the way back to, like, the Lee Kirby stuff, which I love Lee and Kirby, obviously, but I'm not crazy about their X-Men, but the Juggernaut stuff. Mm -hmm. Even in the 60s, you're like, there's something more here with this character. Yeah,
0: it's kind of ingrained in the Marvel DNA in a a cool way, which I think is valuable. I think it's it's valuable stories in general are trying to teach people compassion or trying to get you to empathize with people. So saying that a character is irredeemable or evil Mm -hmm. in quotes for too long starts to feel not satisfying. Right. I think. And I think X-Men has a long line of re-examining characters and asking why they're doing what they're doing and if there's common ground anywhere.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a good juxtaposition too, like to have Sinister there, because Sinister truly is irredeemable in the sense that he doesn't like he does horrible things and also has no. Desire to, it. but yeah. yeah, he has. He doesn't want to be better, right? Yeah. And Victor Laval is doing something similar now with Saber It's like this guy deserves the worst stuff you could throw at him. However, is it just to do this kind of imprisonment? To yeah, anyone? yeah. No, right? Um, yeah. and that's also a question posed by Nanny and the Orphan Maker in your series. But I think the distinction that's made is we're all really really upset that Nanny and Orphan Maker are in the pit now. And that I think is the power of showing that there are shades of villainy, shades of evil. Madeline opening the series felt like a pretty strong statement on that too because she does pretty horrendous things. But I was very moved when you did the callback to that incredible uncanny issue, speaking Mm -hmm. of Sylvester's art, the one where she dreams and, and Scott pulls all of her facial features off and yeah, gives them yeah, back to Gene. so
2: powerful. That's
1: just an, a nothing person in a nowhere place or whatever the line is. You know it's a great line, yeah. It, it's it's just, I've never forgotten that issue. And so the second I saw that, I was like, oh, he gets it. Like He <laughs> yeah. knows exactly right. It's no surprise that after this story... A lot of fans who had only known her as like the sexy demon lady with the tits out, yeah, suddenly yeah. were like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! This isn't fair at all."
0: Yeah, and I think that's a very universal feeling in relationship. Relationships are hard, and then getting broken up with or something, you know, someone, losing, yeah, right, someone you, someone you put. Oh, I'm, you know, and especially when you're younger and you haven't figured out codependency and all this stuff. Yes. it's very easy to say, oh, I'm valuable because this person says I'm, look, this person says I'm valuable. This person says I'm important. I'm important and valuable. And then when that person says, oh no, now this person's important and valuable. I think that's a, a very visceral feeling. It's relatable.
1: With Madeline, it's then taken to the extreme because not only does he leave her, she then starts building up a sense of self and like, I am a person who matters my own person. And then her father arrives and tells her, oh, no, actually, you aren't a real person. You don't matter. And I created you only to love him. So if he's rejected you, you now simply have no purpose on Earth.
0: And she's like,
1: well, I reject that framework entirely, actually. (laughs) And the tragic thing is, you know, like she says really awful things to Alex in this first arc, like it was always about Scott and this and that. And I mean, my read is that she's just saying that to hurt him because I think that the true... I think the relationship between them is actually the most honest and real relationship either of them have ever had. And what's so fucked up about it is that, like, the external circumstances are so twisted that up. they can't yeah. make it work, you know? I'm really eager to see what happens with them next. I think it could go any a million different ways. From what Vida's doing so far, it seems like she's not really interested in talking to him right now, which I think <laughs> yeah. is fair. Because yeah. I, yeah. I, I loved 18 when she's just like, so... They agreed to bring me back, not because <laughs> yeah. I'm a real person who deserves to be brought back, but as a favor to thank to this, you yeah. for doing something for Emma. That's great. Yeah. Cool. She's yeah. like, I don't yeah. even know Emma. She's like, I've never even met that woman. Like, great, yeah. cool. Great story. Good times. Yeah. For me. So
0: she's definitely, yes, she is still Madeline. Like she still has that chip on her shoulder. I wanted as that she to she should, feel, yeah. As she should. Yeah. I wanted that to feel I didn't have the guts to not have Madeline say that because I kind of wanted to just leave that there. Like have her be resurrected but and
1: just be thinking it but not saying yeah it to be him.
0: thinking but, it but then I was like I can't I was too scared that readers might would think it was I actually
1: like a happy ending and you didn't Yeah, out I I up. That yeah. I didn't
0: see what was going on. So I, I was like I can't do it. I can't do it. I gotta <laughs> let the readers know that I know this is messed up. But it's very Madeline, right? It's very yes. Madeline. It's very I had this rule when I started writing Helians and I didn't know I had, but halfway through I realized I had. What I think made Hellions compelling is seeing the world be mean to them. To certain people, to a lot of people in the world, the world has been very mean to them. Like the, like love is in short supply. Right. And so, and, and I think Madeline fits in with this world so well. So her being resurrected, it couldn't just be a win. It can't, this is not what I'm trying no, to say. No, it, has to, it, it has, has to hurt.
1: It has to hurt.
0: Everything has to hurt because the book is about, people that hurt like people that hurt and try and how
1: hurt people hurt people i mean how that's hurt something people, that hurt people all one of the did is- quote says in like yes. the second issue it's like some of the people who cause the most pain are people who've known suffering you can't imagine nanny yeah. famously or not so famously because again not that major a character but <laughs> to, was tortured into insanity by cameron hodge i mean yes. that is that's your backstory so yeah. you have to sort of think well okay She's still responsible for her actions, but to what extent are her crimes mitigated morally by what's been done to her? And so there's a lot of interesting interplay there. And like with Madeline, it's easier to see because it's so cosmic. It's like, she found out yeah. she was a clone. She was told she was worthless broodstock that no longer yeah. had a purpose on earth. So she sold her soul to the devil by accident. But once she found out what she'd done, she was like, you know what? I'm all in now. I'm going to be yeah, like, yeah. let's end the world. Let's just do it. Yeah. I refuse. I'm not. There's that new Florence and the Machine song where she's like, I am no mother. I am no bride. I am the king. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly. Yeah, that's like, yeah. that is a Maddie Pryor joint. Because yeah, it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. okay. Then I'm going to kill my husband and my child and end the world on an altar of blood. And like, fuck you, basically. Yeah. Yeah, because i and have to let it. you
0: know i'm a real person i yeah. have to let you know
1: because you can't i, ignore I reject this reality if it implies that i have no value as yes. a human being fuck That's me under- fuck you yeah it's, it's fuck the, you it's what it is. like and that i think has a lot of power to it and one of the things that makes madeline i think so compelling to people and why x-man explored her in the 90s and stuff like that is because she's enough of a logical thinking person when she's in her right mind that she knows that's wrong. And so she can feel guilt. Like she's not like sinister in that way, despite being his daughter, she doesn't think like him. She wants to be a good person. She wants to be an X-Man. She wants to be a hero. She always did. She sacrificed herself with them and followed the mutants. So, you know, but that brings us to Nanny. When you were pitching, was this your first concept? Like, because it seems like such a slam dunk that it's wild to me that no one's ever really done it. Like, I mean, I guess the, the Mackie X factor is sort of similar in the 90s, but like the idea of let's do X-Men Suicide Squad. Yeah. In the Ostrander sort of tradition, much like Ostrander did, like let's bring together obscure characters and then put them with a babysitter, like Rick Flagg or Psylocke in this case and see what happens. Yeah. Was that like something that you came in with the pitch for? Or was it something you arrived at more slowly? How did you like pick out the characters and stuff?
0: Yeah, it was part of the pitch. And I felt that it was just so much fun. And I, yeah, and I didn't, I thought with bringing all of the villains onto the island, just doing a villains book sounded mm-hmm. so much fun. It yeah. just, that's just like, and, and the X-Men villains are so good. And then it just became a, like, go, just going through lists of characters and just trying to pick right. out ones. And it, it's this weird thing where it's not just, you're not just picking out, backstories or characters you're also thinking about it visually you're thinking about the cover you're Mm -hmm. thinking about and then you're also thinking about well what in a team what does this character give us what kind of dynamic what kind of friction does the character give us and there was like I was trying to get typhoid Mary uh, because I wondered about that
1: because she like there were a couple characters where I kept saying like if I could add one character to this book so like it was like typhoid they were all women because I mean yeah 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 typhoid Mary Threnody and Mortis were the three that I kept thinking about because they all have a power that has made them crazy and a power that is just you got a raw deal like sorry yeah. you know and those would have been great but i imagine typhoid is like taken at the yeah it's, office, it's taken you know
0: you know i asked three times but and i totally get it like that's a daredevil character at
1: this point, right she's not next men character well she yeah, al- I yeah. mean, always like that was that was annie Nascenti's big villain at that moment yeah yeah and so totally got it but totally wanted her you know in inferno too of course yeah
0: yeah of course that those awesome issues that, those awesome... Uh, that's my
1: favorite inferno tie in the daredevil yeah story, yeah
0: the, the tie-ins too with inferno they, they, they yeah i got to i got everywhere. to talk to
1: annie Nesenti about that on this show which was yeah a dream that's that awesome. is an incredible she's story. fantastic she's so great
0: and then it was also when you talk about threnody and it was also trying to get characters that I. Had an attachment to. Yeah, yeah, had attachment to, selfishly, you know? Yeah, no, of course. Um, Because you got to care. I got to care. Like, and I can get there with other characters, but I thought (laughs) that this would help. It would be easier.
1: Especially uh, in a book as psychology-driven as this. Like, you want to get in their heads, and it helps if you have, like, a pre-existing connection of some kind.
0: Yes. And Grey Crow always had an awesome, just had an awesome look. I like that his backstory, there's a lot of... Trauma there, Mm -hmm. and he's a very challenging character to say, okay, this terrible stuff. How do we get in touch with his pain to show that that maybe it was pain begetting pain instead of just an animal killing indiscriminately? But there was a lot of back and forth, and then, like I said, like it was like, well, Jordan was and Nanny and Orphan Maker. Like, when I first saw Orphan Maker, I was like, who is that freaking badass? Right. And then <laughs> and then you see him talking like a little boy, and you're like... Crying oh, to his <laughs> nanny, yeah. right? Like, yeah, I mean, that's the Ooh. genius of
1: the design, right?
0: Yeah. And then, oh, he's talking to the egg lady. And you're like, okay, what is happening here?
1: Is it you or Segovia who decided that nanny should have lips? Because that is, <laughs> I think, the most consequential choice, perhaps, of the 21st century in comics. <laughs>
0: I... <laughs> I thought that we should have I thought we should have like a digital readout on her face so that I thought it could would be fun if like she could show like emojis emotions, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, emotions. But then Steven did a version which I think if you look at like the first cover, yeah. Uh that was like she has like a bigger mouth and it's yes. sort of like mm-hmm. digital and we were like, well, should it look more emoji-like and, and small? And then suddenly those lips <laughs> he drew the that second was- version where those lips, and I was like. Maybe she just keeps those lips. When Chris
1: Hassan showed the Simonsons some art from Hellions, that was when Wheezy gasped. She went, the lips!
2: Oh, no! But like, she loved
1: it. But she was just like, that's so wrong. And twisted. Because it does effectively make her so much more human just because she, like, the lack of a facial expression. Because they don't move. really it's also just very funny though because then it just becomes this sort of flat affect and she's talking behind, and you're just very you're even more unsettled by it because now it's like a porcelain doll just looking at you which is never a pleasant experience to begin with but it's nanny it's an egg with like you're just like this is horrible
0: which was a punishment that was put upon (laughs) her yes but suddenly but it's become part of her now and like what does that say about her character that she's now decorating right. it? That it's yeah, like, okay, right. I'm, the, I'm the egg person. So let's spruce this up a little Because that's bit.
1: established in the 90s is that she eventually figures out how to get out of the suit, but she's like, mm, I'd rather stay in now, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so what is what, what that the say? hell's that about? Right, so now there's all the, I mean, I loved the like late game twist of this guy's her ex-husband, because the idea yeah. of like Nanny having any kind of personal life is what, yeah. like, who is this? And we still don't know. And I love that. And that's for later writers to dig into or for you to resume digging into if you ever get a chance to. But I just think it's so, like the question for me had never really occurred to me because it, like reading the classic stuff, because in the classic stuff, I mean, I had been like, what's this lady's deal? Cause she's crazy. But yeah, the, she's such a force of nature in those stories. Like it's just, cause it's so scary. Like they're home invaders who kill parents and steal their children. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but this version of them is cute. Is the thing like it's broken and twisted and abusive? Their relationship is horrible, but also you're very they need each them, other, and you want them to be okay. Yeah, and like she yeah. is abusing him emotionally, but you also know that like she is so broken. She like, thinks she's he- she's helping, right? Her. And yeah. so it's just like there and. Yeah, it's I mean from the start when he wants his nanny, and you get to the lullaby and all of it's like so you're just I I remember that was when I started the show. Two of the characters I got the most questions about were people just like so what what's the deal with nanny and I was like you know about as much as I do at this point. Uh Like we're gonna find out more as we go. Were there any characters besides Typhoid you really wanted to get but they were taken? I
0: was looking at Marrow and I was looking at Omega Red. Maybe on the break, I'll look at my first pitch. I, That'd I had, be
1: cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I had more characters for sure. And then, yeah, thinking about like Silhouette uh, on the uh, on like a group shot, like. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm like I think it was one of the Ten of Swords issues where the cover was Stephen just drew the characters like walking towards yeah. us. And I thought, oh, we did a good job. That's a good yeah. silhouette. Like that's all a those great group of that's people. A, yeah. yeah. It just looks like no one quite looks like the other person looks like. It looks like a very good mix of characters.
1: Well, and I love Empath wearing his like couture titty top unitard <laughs> yeah. because it looks so out of place with all of these like badass villains. And then Psylocke and Havoc who have more action oriented, like superhero designs. And then this guy is like, what's that? This and I love creep. those Hellions yeah. looks. I mean, again, like one of my favorite Missionary stories is your Necrotia New Mutants thing when the Hellions oh, pop yeah. back up. I will never forget when Jetstream gets bisected and that, and cat's eye starts licking at his like wound. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, just a taste. It will grow back. <laughs> Cause she's a cat, you know, like, what is she going to do, cat. right? Yeah, the zombie cat. All the cat that design is fun, but it's so 80s and so of its moment. And to throw that in was also fun. Like even Wild Child, because that's the thing is like that design is like 90s age of apocalypse. Right. Yeah. So it felt like all of these different eras of the X-Men thrown together, but specifically a pack of weirdos. And it was yeah, so yeah. bizarre that I was like, there's no way this is going to work. And then it only took one issue for me to be like, I'm, I I love this book more than I can express. <laughs> like- <laughs>
0: And I think what I think it is is that my theory that I've come up with is that it doesn't matter like how much the readers love the characters, like if the writer loves
2: mm-hmm. the character,
0: if the writer is like, hey, look at these guys, like, and, and this yeah. shows you why he loves them. I remember, I, I don't know why I think of that J.J. Abrams first Star Trek movie, which I did, like, I just have no affection for Star Trek. Sure. at all, but, but I liked that movie. Helpful
1: to like that movie, in my experience. Yeah. <laughs> it, because,
0: it's like, it's, it's yeah. much like the
1: X-Men movie. Sure, you sure. You didn't it care going been, in. Yeah, it's, it, it might have been a different experience yeah.
0: if you like Star Trek, but I felt like the writers were kind of trying to show me why they loved Star Trek or the mm-hmm. things about Star Trek they loved on some way, and I was like, okay, sure. I can get into this. And so I think when you can tell a writer... Is really into what they're writing or really thinks there's something there, I think that goes a long way. I'd rather have that than a character than have a writer write a character that I love but maybe doesn't have as much affection for them.
1: Well, I think a particular gift that you have as a writer also is taking characters who I think have been unloved and making them feel loved in a way they haven't. I mean, I think that everybody loves Ileana right but right I think that your new mutants run got at her interiority in a way that Mm. was unusual for anyone after Claremont and after she'd been taken off you know karma is the one that I always think of too in that run because I think until you wrote that book I don't think anyone had really ever given karma a fair shake as a character and now I think you and then Marjorie Lou and now Vida Ayala have all done really yeah. great work with Karma. But that's a character who, even Claremont, who clearly loved her, couldn't figure out what to do with her. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And Havoc here, I'm a big Alex fan because again, like the Alex and Maddie of it all, the Outback era, that's my ex then. Like I love that stuff. Since the 90s, it's just been a brutal run for Alex and the Uncanny Avengers period for him was deeply dire in a lot of ways so it was just really refreshing to me as someone who was always trying to explain to people no i alex is great i'll explain why i swear to god like to see just a writer go like this character is great like he's a mess he's a complete mess but let's get into it let's get into why he's a mess (laughs) you know yeah 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 which i think
0: as i've gotten older it's, it's just you realize that That's how you should treat people. Like, right? this person's a mess. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Like, what's What's going on? What's wrong with you,
1: buddy? Like, (laughs) let's figure it out, you know? What's
0: happening? What's happening here? What happened to you? Right. And then Havoc has an incredible silhouette, too. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: it's like, you know exactly who that is to the point where when it was like, who are these characters? And everyone's like, well, that's Havoc, right? I don't even remember. They might have revealed him from the start. I don't even remember, actually. Yeah. There were a couple where it was just like, well, but th- that was one of the most shocking things. But I was like, that's Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Like, it was very clear from the silhouettes, if you knew who they were at all, you were like, yeah, I was like, we're putting Nanny and the Orphan Maker on a team book? But- <laughs> I think Jordan was the
0: same way. I don't think I quite realized how close we were to them not being on the team. Because I think that, I think Jordan, it was the 11th hour where he was finally like, okay, I'm coming around, I'm coming around on them. And I was like, coming around on them? they're oh my a gosh. yeah
1: that? that surprised me because jordan he did this podcast very early on which was very generous of him but like he loves the tech net like he loves weird
0: yeah 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 weirdos he like does, that, he does. you know yeah, that's why it shocked me so much
1: but i get that again from a sales pitch perspective like and then we've got nanny and the orphan maker and it's like who it's like that's not a wolverine like and it's much less not, it's not even not just a wolverine it's like it's an egg lady who kills children's parents and abducts them and then indoctrinates them into doing crimes. It's like, okay, yeah. what do you want to do with this character? <laughs> like, there's just a lot of... So I think now might actually be a good time to take the listeners through the Cerebro character file on the Eleanor merch and Peter, Nanny and the Orphan Maker, I will give you their full publication history, which is not that extensive, so it won't take too long. And then we will come back for more with Zeb Wells. We will talk about Hellions, about Nanny and the Orphan Maker, and their tragic arc in that book. And then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Dr. Eleanor Merch, until 2021, known only by the alias Nanny, is a classic X-Men villain with a particularly strange M.O. Created by the husband and wife team of Louise and Walt Simonson, Nanny is obsessed with the idea that mutant children are being abused by their human parents. In order to rescue them, she murders those parents and takes them into her own care as her lost boys and girls. In this pursuit, she is aided by her first adoptee, Peter, the lost boy called the Orphan Maker. Nanny and the Orphan Maker debut in 1988's X Factor 30, and their crimes quickly become a running B-plot over the following issues. In issue 33, we see Orphan Maker invade a home, sedate two latent mutant girls, and murder the girl's parents so Nanny can abduct them. In the following issue, Nanny learns of Cameron Hodges' plans to sacrifice mutant babies to the demon Nastir, and sends Orphan Maker to seize one of the intended victims by, again, murdering her parents. They do this a lot, basically. In X Factor 35, part of the lead-up to the franchise-wide event Inferno, Scott Summers and Jean Grey, a.k.a. Cyclops and Marvel Girl, visit the orphanage in Nebraska where Scott was raised, as they believe Scott's missing infant son Nathan may be held captive there. Nanny and the Orphan Maker attack in an effort to kidnap all the mutant children at the orphanage, and Nanny directs a group of mutant children she's already adopted, her lost boys and girls, to aid her in her efforts. Breaking into the creepy basement where Mr. Sinister has kept mutant babies in stasis at the orphanage, don't worry about it right now, Nanny orders Orphan Maker to kill Scott after he reveals one of the children is his own. Jean is horrified to realize that two of Nanny's minions are her niece and nephew Galen and Joey Bailey, who disappeared months earlier along with their mother, Jean's older sister Sarah Gray, a mutant rights activist. Jean is able to determine that Nanny is a low-level telepath who augments her power with a mind control agent she calls her Pixie Dust while Scott's able to overpower the Orphan Maker. Amid the melee, a horde of demons arrives and steals the babies. Nanny, Orphan Maker, and the lost boys and girls escape in Nanny's airship. In Avengers 299 and 300, written by Walt Simonson, yes, Avengers 300 is a Nanny and the Orphan Maker story, Nanny targets Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman's mutant son, Franklin Richards. Don't worry about it right now. Orphan Maker attempts to kill the Richardses before taking Franklin, but is frightened by the invisible woman's force fields and runs away with the child. He lies to Nanny at first, but eventually admits he failed to kill the parents. Nanny mind-controls Franklin with her pixie dust and pits him against his parents, giving her and the Orphan Maker an opportunity to escape. After the Inferno concludes, back in the pages of X-Factor, Scott and Jean now have custody of the mutant babies the demon Nastir intended to use in his ritual. Nanny waits until X-Factor attempts to hand the babies over to the government, and then attacks. When the heroes realize that Nanny and the Orphan Maker are people in robotic suits of some kind, Peter the Orphan Maker is compelled to tell them Nanny's origin story. The woman now called Nanny was a brilliant roboticist hired by Cameron Hodge to create cyborg technology for his organization, The Right. Secretly a mutant herself, she was furious when she discovered her technology was being used to arm would-be mutant hunters. She tried to put a stop to it, but Hodge locked her inside an egg-shaped suit of armor she had developed for him. The experience drove her insane, and eventually she managed to break free and run away, still trapped inside the egg. She rescued Peter from Mr. Sinister, who'd rejected the boy, one of his experiments, after realizing Peter's developing mutant power was going to be too dangerous to control. Nanny then constructed the Orphan Maker suit to contain Peter's power safely. Back in the present, Jean finds the lost boys and girls, including Galen and Joey, in a stasis chamber that prevents them from aging and frees them. Nanny and the Orphan Maker are once again forced to flee. A few months later, over an uncanny X-Men, Nanny spies on Donald Pierce and the Reavers and learns that they plan to kill the X-Men. Nanny decides she will save these mutant youngsters herself, capturing Psylocke, Havoc, and Dazzler and mentally regressing them to childhood, transforming them into lost boys and girls. Nanny and the Orphan Maker stand triumphant over all but Storm, but are startled by a stowaway, Jubilee, who's been secretly living in the X-Men's base. Storm manages to free the other X-Men, but is herself captured and brought aboard Nanny's ship, which shoots off into the sky. Havoc, still disoriented, takes aim to bring the ship down, and apparently kills Storm. About a year later, it's revealed that the Storm, who apparently died in Australia, was a life-model decoy Nanny created to trick the X-Men. Nanny then escaped with the real Storm, whom she regressed both physically and mentally to the age of about 12 using experimental technology. This story is weird. Storm escapes despite having no adult memories or mutant powers, as she was a skilled thief and lockpick even as a child. Nanny and the Orphan Maker pursue her, but Peter is jealous of Nanny's interest in Storm and sabotages her efforts to recover the girl. Here we find out that Nanny has some kind of history with the Shadow King, which has never been explored, but when she finds out the Shadow King is also after Storm, she gets pretty freaked out. Storm and her new friend Gambit manage to defeat Nanny and the Orphan Maker and send their ship careening into the bayou, leaving them to crash to their apparent deaths. Shortly after this storyline, both Nanny and Peter's creator Louise Simonson and longtime X-Men architect Chris Claremont were pushed out of the franchise. Five years later, Nanny and Peter return in the pages of Scott Lobdell and Chris Botulow's Generation X. In the intervening time, Nanny's found a way to remove the egg armor, but has decided to continue to live in it anyway. Her ability to stunt Peter's growth has begun failing, and she's concerned by how his dangerous mutant power is developing, but nevertheless continues their mission to rescue mutant children. We see Peter observing Monet Sankwa's father, apparently keeping tabs once more on the parents of mutants. Nanny then dispatches Peter to save a young boy attacked by an anti-mutant mob, but Peter is overpowered by Gen X and has to run away. In the 1999 Generation X holiday special by Joseph Harris and Adam Polina, Peter tries to impress Nanny by mind-controlling some of the Gen X kids and capturing them for her. He then bungles an orphan-making session due to the intervention of Jubilee and is then confronted by Santa Claus, who tells him he's naughty. I am not making this up. Santa tries to convince Peter to change his ways, but he ultimately proves loyal to Nanny. Later that year, in the Spider-Man spin-off Slingers, also written by Joseph Harris, a flashback shows us that Nanny and Peter are central to the origin story of cast member Johnny Gallo, a.k.a. Ricochet. When he was a child, only recently manifesting mutant powers, Johnny attracted the attention of Nanny. Peter murdered his mother, but they were unable to locate the child. Now, seven years later, Nanny decides to kidnap Ricochet, feeling bad that she failed to adopt him the first time. She sends Peter to kill Johnny's father and plans to use her technology to de-age Johnny and raise him again. Johnny escapes Nanny and manages to intercept Peter, convincing the Orphan Maker to abandon the mission by making him worry that Johnny might become Nanny's new favorite. Nine years later, Nanny and Peter return in the 2008 one-shot Wolverine Killing Made Simple by Christopher Yost and Coy Turnbull. As two of the rare mutants still empowered following the decimation, Nanny and Peter feel even more urgently about saving those mutant children who still remain. Nanny targets one of the X-Men's students, Hope Abbott, a.k.a. Trance, at her parents' home. But Wolverine is tipped off by Hope's precognitive classmate, Ruth Aldean, a.k.a. Blindfold. Nanny abandons her attempts to kill Hope's parents when Peter is injured. Eleven years after that, Matthew Rosenberg pits Nanny and the Orphan Maker against the X-Men again in the Uncanny X-Men tie-in miniseries for the company-wide event War of the Realms. Nanny and Peter are captured, but this battle is quickly overshadowed by the coming of Malekith and his Dark Elves, which truly do not worry about it. This is not a Thor podcast. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Pirates of 10 by writer Jonathan Hickman, Nanny and Peter are among countless means to become citizens of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Alongside most of the X-Men's old enemies, Nanny and Peter receive amnesty from the Krakoan state in exchange for a vow to be productive citizens and commit no further crimes. Nanny and Peter are, however, weird and hard to integrate into a functional society, so they end up assigned to a squad of problematic mutants called the Hellions, placed under the supervision of Mr. Sinister and directed in the field by Kanon, the second Psylocke. Ostensibly, the purpose of the Hellions is therapeutic, but Sinister deploys them on missions that aren't exactly helpful psychologically, beginning with an ill-fated return to the Essex Orphanage in Nebraska. I don't want to tell you too much about Hellions, an 18-issue ongoing by Zeb Wells and Stephen Segovia, because it's a brilliant book that only just came out, and you should read it. Nanny and Peter go through a lot. We learn that Nanny's human name is Eleanor Murch, and her ex-husband, Dr. Harold Murch, is still a high-ranking member of the right. In the final issue of the series, when Peter is condemned to the pit beneath Krakoa for accidentally killing innocent humans, Nanny insists on being imprisoned beside him. She sings a lullaby to comfort him as they are dragged beneath the earth to whatever hell lurks beneath Krakoa. And perhaps the saber-toothed devil waiting there. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with Zeb Wells, recently the writer of Hellions, now the writer on Amazing Spider-Man. Zeb, how you doing? Having a good time?
0: Doing great. Having a great time. Thank you, Connor.
1: Thank you, Zeb. I'm glad I
0: was bullied into doing the show. (laughs)
1: I'm glad I did the bullying because this is a fun note to end the season on. Here's a little treat for the listeners, because I know that they are eagerly wondering as I've announced, I'm taking four weeks off and I am insisting on, I'm probably, I know that this episode is now coming out in April. I've run a little behind schedule, but I am taking a full four weeks. I got it guys, or I'm going to lose my mind. However, when Cerebra returns in May, it will be with Kieran Gillen, who is joining us Ooh. to talk about Nathaniel Essex, Mr. Sinister, a character that he revolutionized and that Zeb really carried the torch on in a lot of ways. But I am really excited to see what Kieran will do with Sinister in a time when, I mean, I'm excited to see generally what, Kieran's a friend of mine and we've been friends for years and I love his writing and I like his X-Men stuff a lot, but I do feel like the period of X-Men that he was writing in, there was so little you could do because of all the restrictions Mm. in the setting. I mean, I'm sure that you experienced that to some extent with your New Mutants run. And now the sky really is the limit. Like, I feel like Kieran could pitch the most insane shit you've ever heard and it would be like yeah we can do that right now you know and he is he is yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't, that's don't what i'm hearing you know it's he like I'm he- yeah. i hear it's big i hear it's a big book yeah yeah you know?
0: they are not they are not playing small in the x office yeah um, at the moment
1: So that will be our season three premiere. The first several weeks of season three are all going to be pro interviews. So I'm really excited about a lot of the stuff I have lined up for the rest of this year. But thank you all for your support through the first two seasons of Cerebro up through this episode 75 with Seb Wells, which is about Nanny and the Orphan Maker. We've been talking about Hellions more generally. With Nanny and Peter, what was the... Core story you wanted to tell there with those characters because I think that they are the ones who have most emotionally gripped people by the end in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I can't say that I knew exactly what I wanted to do with them, but I knew there was something there. I knew that there was something I wanted to explore there. When I was thinking about them, I thought about the introduction scenes for everyone in Hellions One and. I just saw their introduction so clear, which was, "Hey, it's a utopia. We are going to separate nanny and orphan maker and give them some treatment right. and some healing, and then we we cut in and orphan maker is flipping out.
1: It's like he doesn't want a nap. He not. wants his where, nanny. Yeah,
0: where is my nanny? Where is she? Like you cannot separate us. So we and then nanny comes in and calms him, and we instantly see this deeply codependent in a way. That kind of only a mother and a son or a you know like well a, it's very
1: a, Lucille and Buster Bluth, right? Like it's that kind yeah. of like mother yes. and boy, mother boy kind of energy. Super too. dysfunctional. Yeah. And and but as, she needs as, him as much as he needs her, oh, right? Like of, it's of it's course, this very toxic, course. codependent relationship where she's keeping him in supplication to her because she needs that. But at the same yeah. time he doesn't want to leave so it's he doesn't want to leave because weird... he's yeah because he likes not having responsibilities
0: in... yes and he likes having someone to tell him what to do this sickening comfort that will kill all of us if we don't
1: well because that's we the other thing, thing is orphan makers power has never been disclosed in his long history from the 80s stuff that louise and walt simonson did we know that it's a dangerous power and sinister actually was experimenting on him as a child and he was rescued from sinister by nanny who designed the suit that keeps his powers in check in this series it becomes very clear and i liked amino fetus as sort of a dark mirror of this like that yeah this is a child who if left unchecked if he isn't supervised by his nanny could end the world except that this nanny's care is so poisonous that it's not necessarily helping right Like, yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and so i thought there was a lot to explore there and i think i was right as we started getting towards the end of this series so many things started popping up that was about dysfunctional mother and son relationships you know like your mother can say something to you that, that can like just cut you to the core and oh, shred yeah. you but in in doing that, they think they're protecting you. They mm-hmm. think they're they think that in some twisted way that's how they're showing love. You you know because yeah. they're trying to keep you safe. They're trying to criticize to keep you safe to keep Which you. Which I'm going to so hurt you safe. so
1: other people don't? You know?
0: Yes. And I thought that if you extrapolated that dysfunctional mother son relationship for twenty years, where does it get to? How abusive does it get? And so. That's why it was important to show how abusive it can get. Because at the end, Nanny is super terrible to mm-hmm. Orphan Maker. Horrible, make because, horrible. Because yeah, he's grown she's... up
1: too much and it makes her uncomfortable. Because yeah. what happened in Ammon. Yes, now he's a man. It's I mean, you see him going through his teenage, I'm rejecting my mom kind of thing. Yep. But by the end of this book, he's an adult. He is still not emotionally capable of coping with life. But he does need to take responsibility for himself. And that's why it is so bizarrely moving at the end when she sacrifices herself to be with him, because you realize that even if she is twisted and wrong, and even if this relationship is broken and abusive, she does love him more than she loves herself. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something really powerful about that. It doesn't make her a good mother. It doesn't make her no. a good person. But, but you
0: can understand how you get there. You right. understand how you get there with a little bit of compassion, which I think is important. My mom is pretty religious, you know, so I was mm-hmm. raised religiously and like so part of my journey in therapy and whatnot is trying to come to peace with the idea that she was trying to show me love in ways that i don't accept you know right. that i don't that i think we're destructive or we're, Zebediah
1: we're is what i is what's yeah. that short for i assume that's a pretty like evangelically kind of name yeah, right? yeah yeah yeah
0: exactly exactly so i don't want to get too far into it no but we're not um, i'm not i'm not like let's little, psychoanalyze
1: a, you i yeah, yeah. i'm, I'm emma plus now we're gonna like,
0: <laughs> but there's a little bit of and of course not to that degree but you can you have to like explore your relationship with your parents and see the things that you're so at least try to see the love that was behind the dysfunction, Mm -hmm. you know, the and so this was like a heightened version of that.
1: Yeah, and I think there are two ways that story can go in a fantasy setting like this. And one of them is this where the mother does have a come to Jesus moment, essentially, where she realizes, like, I have broken this child and it's my fault and I'm responsible and I need to do something or yeah. it's Carrie yeah because it's very yeah. like go to the closet and pray like you know like <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, nat- yeah, nat- yeah. Nanny's approach to Orphan Maker is very like Piper Laurie Carrie style stuff so yeah. or- Right down to, like, the bombast and drama with which she comports herself. I mean, there's a reason that gay men love quoting that movie because Piper Laurie, it's it's campy, it's huge, it's dramatic. That's actually Julianne Moore said when she did the remake of Carrie that she made a purposeful choice to make her version of Margaret White, like, very restrained and very... Right, right. ...very contained because she said, I felt like if I did anything that was remotely big or bombastic or emotional it would just feel like I was doing like a Piper Laurie impression so she's like I had to do something super different A nanny is I mean I in my head she's always had like a British accent like she sounds like Julie Andrews or Maggie Smith or one of those like like a governess kind of Uh uh Um, but I know that some people always hear her as Fran Drescher because she's the nanny which I think is very funny also (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so those are two options and either of them could work but I think either way what that emphasizes like because she's just a voice because she is this egg walking around that has words coming out of it <laughs> you know that like whatever it is whatever she sounds like whatever like she gives off it's something huge it's either like yeah, yeah. Maggie Smith or Fran Drescher because it's like it's a character. It's not there's nothing pedestrian about this person like Nanny just exists. One of my favorite things that recurs is like she's always standing behind people and they don't know because she's so little. (laughs) Like when Sinister is like, oh my God, don't do that. You know, like Nanny's just there and she's like, you're a bad man. Which, yeah, which I think (laughs) would
0: be busted by your mother, you know, like. Yes, and even Sinister who's 100 years older than her
1: is just like, oh, I hate that. God, God, mom. Right. It's so good. And I think that the best villains and particularly villains that we can latch on to our villains who evoke a response like that in us i mean cameron yes, Hodge yes. is an interesting one too you bring him back sort of in this in a little bit of a, a cameo and cameron i mean as a gay man i find cameron hodge to be the scariest villain in yeah absolutely yeah because someone who's so in love with his best friend who doesn't reciprocate that he tortures his girlfriend to death and becomes robot Hitler is like that's that's crazy like that's fully crazy and it's scary and like so I mean I was very excited to see him back and there's a question about him but even though it was a decoy or whatever that's a character you can't keep down for long but I would imagine if you have that kind of religious background because that's also something with Hodge is like the way that the right becomes I quite enjoyed Susan the right's minion a problematic fave I think that a lot of people have now Uh uh uh-huh. Can't take it. It was like Susan. Like, Susan's a little much, guys. Sorry. Like, even for us, we're yeah. sorry about Susan. Uh, <laughs> but that's something to latch on to, too, because that's like that's scary. The, the idea of hating yourself that much is that scary. The idea of religion crushing down on you that much is really scary. And I, I think that with Nanny, it's twofold. One of the things is like the idea of my mom being like a Munchausen by proxy kind of like abusive mom is extremely scary. That's like a primordial, like the mother who harms is something that yeah, is yeah, just yeah, a yeah. scary Terrifying.
2: Idea, right? Yep.
1: And then at the same time, there's part of her where you look at her and you can see how you might behave in situations when you don't want someone to ignore you or to devalue yep. you. Or like much like Madeline wants to be seen as real, Nanny wants to be a good mother. So there's this very, like, and Madeline's motivation is more understandable in that case, but like the, it's so essential to her identity that she is Nanny, that when you tell her you're a bad mom, that destabilizes her whole like (laughs) sense of self, right? Like she can't accept that. Yeah. Even though it's objectively, factually, obviously true to everyone around her in this case, like yeah. she is a bad mom. Madeline's a real yeah. person. Nanny's not a good mom. <laughs> like it's like you have yeah. to, no, she's you're still. gonna, right. Like you're just not, I'm sorry, hon. Like you're not good yeah. at this. You know, And
0: even, and that's like the tragedy of her going into the pit with him at the end. Like it is very like sweet that she did that you know but, but she won't even
1: let him go to the pit by him like she won't even yeah yeah it's still to,
0: dysfunctional. you know? it's it's like that's not yeah it's like still a dysfunctional relationship it's, it's moving it's, it's tragic. But it doesn't fix the relationship it's moving it's like, yes it's, it's, it's like, moving but it's tragic
1: she's accepted that she failed him which is a huge number like character growth thing for her but at the same time she won't let him go without her
0: yeah she simply yep.
1: won't she will give up her own life to prevent him from being without her and alone. Yeah. And part of that, yes, is like, I need to take care of him. I failed him, but also it's, he's not allowed out of my sight. Yes, yes, yes. So it's- There's something toying and thing. scary about it, even as it's touching, even by the end, you know? Yeah.
0: It's still a mean situation for both of them. Like they yeah. did they, they have each other. They'll always have each other. That's what they wanted, but that's not what they needed. No, you know, that's not what they needed
1: and giving a character what they want, but not what they need is, of course, the essential tragic ending. Right. Like, that's yeah. Yeah. The, right. Right. Because Conan and Gray Crow get what they need and yeah. Nanny and Peter and Alex get what they want. And I think yeah. that, that those are the two parallel tracks in a lot of ways. And then empath gets neither what he wants, nor what he needs. And that's yeah. just like, well, sorry, <laughs> he, my guy. he knows it, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, and he and feels it, he at
0: least feels it.
1: Well, but that, I, I mean, that maybe is what he needed actually. I mean, yeah. that's the, because the question that's posed in the first issue of like, if your power makes you a sociopath, is there anything that we can do about that? And so by the end of the series to show, he is capable of having a feeling. You yeah. know, that is that opens up possibility for the Which character. is progress, yeah. Right. And I I mean, I think psychopathy and sociopathy are really interesting thing because they're spectrums, right? Like there's no, like you can, if you're a full-on psychopath like Sabretooth, it is pretty impossible to I mean psychologically. The idea is like that person is not really treatable. You can't really right. repair that. But a sociopath can be, mystique is an example I often use is like is mystique a sociopath like they're fictional characters so you can't really diagnose them is her love for Destiny and rogue transactional is it about herself or is it really like what is it I don't know but that's an interesting story that you could explore and similarly by the end of this empath realizing I wish I did have friends like I wish people did care about me I wish people did think yeah yeah as, like, not a monster. Whichever writer takes that character next could do something really interesting with him based on that desire. Because again, it's like the anti-sinister. Yeah. Uh, like the reason that Sinister underestimates these people is that he doesn't understand that all of these bad people want to be good. Yeah. It's something, because it's something that's not in him. Or certainly hasn't been since like he was cloned for the 50th time. And like, he's just not,
0: yeah, and he's, he makes the mistake that, that all of us make. He sees those people as just versions of him, you know? Right, and, and well, because them- he sees
1: everyone. He, he's used to talking to himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> and, I i mean, on the subject of the cloning, one of the reasons that Grey Crow is a really great character to use here is that the Krakoan semiotics of, like, when I resurrect on Krakoa, am I the same self? Like, the ontology of that and all of that is, like, these big questions. And I love when Greco is just like, listen, Sinister's cloned me like 10 times. Am I the same guy? I think so. But like, it doesn't matter.
0: doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: Right. And I think that that was really key too, because it's not that Sinister's cloned himself a million times. It's the reason why he's this way. It's that he has a megalomaniacal God complex that has made him believe I have transcended human morality. You know, so the response that he has to being a self-replicating clone on person is very different from the response Madeline has to learning that she's a clone and very different from the response that Grey Crow has to being a clone that's just come back a, a million times. The way that each of them comments on Sinister is like an underrated, neat part of this book also, I think, because he's a character that I think it's hard to do serious storytelling about, which is why it was smart that Gillen made him a funny character. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. But
1: there's some serious stuff here at the end of the day like I think that a lot of the existential questions of like which sinister is the real sinister are are explored in this book in fun ways and tarn the uncaring as like a sinister who is a complete unrepentant psychopath is yeah, also yeah. like oh okay like even sinister is not as bad as this guy right, right. like <laughs> right. there's there's always a deeper darker place totally you totally. know. Well, I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions. We've got a ton of questions for this episode, guys, and I can't ask them all, but I'm going to try and ask a bunch. Maxwell Warner writes, Hello, Connor and most revered guest, Zeb. What a treat to end the season with an episode about the undisputed breakout stars of the Krakoan era with the writer who gave them voice. I want to ask about the relative mystery of this dynamic duo. Even after the full run of Hellions, there's still so much we don't know about them. We learn Nanny's full name, but not Orphan Makers. We've never seen either of them outside of their armor suits, and we don't even know what Orphan Makers' power is, just that it's the worst. Zeb, how did you decide what to reveal about these two, and perhaps more importantly, what not to reveal? I think you struck. a great balance, but I'm curious nonetheless. Thanks, Maxwell. They them head on the Cerebro Discord. P.S. Let's not forget about the time that Nanny wanted to adopt Ricochet. He's a fun mutant character. I've always wanted the X books to steal. What was your thought process about how much to reveal? Because I do think that a character having enough mystery to stay interesting is important.
0: Yeah, and I planned on revealing Orphan Maker's power just because I'm the same as everyone else. I you want to know? So curious about yeah. that. I want to know. So there were two things, and, and then as the series started coming to a close, you have to start asking yourself, what what are the most dramatically germane ideas? What makes the most impact? What brings us to a satisfying ending? And Orphan Maker's power being revealed never quite got there as something, as all the Jenga pieces are being put together, mm-hmm. like, because it all has to fit together. but all has to, like, lead into each other. It all has to be organic did you and, know it
1: was going to be 18 from the beginning or did, were you more like oh i'm doing spider-man now i gotta sunset this a little bit it, it was
0: more like sunsetting it was also that i couldn't quite get the beat if it was ending that way anyways right you know? sure but I was yeah so i also do like to end stories your new mutants like run that.
1: emphatically like could have kept going and just ends where it ends which is I mean that scene with karma and magic is an all timer for me. Chilling, I, chilling. I'm very
0: proud of I'm very proud of that scene. I you I, should be. I it's I, I don't, one of my I, favorites. don't talk, I don't speak well of my work often. I don't do that. I but I do think we nailed those last couple pages, uh, I, I love. I love. That's those last my. Those pages. are
1: my favorite. Like barring the classic step, that's my favorite page of Ilyana doing anything ever. Like I think that that, like hugging
0: it. Peter, it's all great. And, and just looking, looking up, right
1: like, over his yeah, shoulder, no. like I dare you, bitch, tell him anything. <laughs> yeah. I will yeah. end you. <laughs> <Yeah. It's, laughs> and Sean just like you know what, fair enough. I'm gonna leave that one alone. Yeah. But what she doesn't. We do? do find out DNA. Have her go and yeah, tell people. But, but I wanted but to leave. That you story left it ambiguous. What am I gonna do? Right. What Shit, am I going to do? Gonna the do. lady or the tiger, yeah. right? Like what? It, yeah, sometimes yeah. it's better to leave it unanswered. And yeah. with Peter's power, I think that's one of those things. I personally don't think we should ever find out what Peter's power is, because I think yeah. if it's so scary that Xavier doesn't want it to get out and is like, that's the worst thing that could happen. I feel like the the reader imagining what it is, is more interesting than ever providing the answer to the question. Yes. Personally. And
0: full disclosure. I never came up with a power or a reveal that satisfied me. Right, you're like, that's not big worth- enough, you know? Yeah, that's not big enough. And then it's got to be so big. And then the story moment has to be so big. Like,
1: you The story has to justify solving the mystery, right? Because yes. otherwise you want to leave. I mean, this is my problem with a lot of retcon stories that fill in characters' backstories and whatnot is like, like, I think it's really, really good that we don't know anything about Mystique's life before she met Irene. And yes. if Kieran yes. wants to tell some of that, I would trust Kieran to do it. But I, he would
0: do it in a way that, that, was, that was additive.
1: Right. Like, the and this is an issue I have a lot of Wolverine stories, very specifically. Of course. Like the, the answers to the question of who Wolverine was, to me, didn't justify answering the question when what was interesting about him was that he didn't know and we didn't know you know
0: no i did not need to see him like a, a,
1: a wilting victorian lad no no
0: no i don't want to see that don't show me that what? I'm forgetting it. I forget that it happened. I don't care. I'm, I'm pretending like it never happened. Don't when Ben was on
1: the show, I was, and, and Victor, both of them, I was just like, I mean, I know that like he's. I was like the fun of Wolverine and say is they don't remember how it all started. And then I paused. and was like, I mean, I know that like now we're supposed to say, it. and they were both like, no, but like, they don't fuck it. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's just, that sucks. Or, like, well, that's what's great about
0: the, the organism that is comic books is right. it's just, if you don't organism- like it. The Forget organism about rejects, it. rejects things, yeah, you know. Yeah, it, well, it, the it...
1: catchphrase that emerged organically on this show is, don't worry about it, because I ended up saying it so many times in the character files, because, like, it was truly, I was like, and then, like, Ro- like Romulus, okay? I was like, then Romulus shows up, don't worry about it, you really do not need to Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. And I think that's one of the beauties of long ongoing continuity like this is you don't have to worry about everything at the same time if you read enough of it there's a little bit I mean one of my favorite lines in Hellions and I think about it all the time because you have to know what he's you have to have read Inferno to like have any idea what he's talking about but when the decoy Cameron Hodge is confronting the Hellions and Alex is going off on like him conspiring with the demon Nastir, but he doesn't say year's name. He just like explains it. But I mean, then he, he goes, I heard about it, friend of a friend. Like Alex <laughs> describing Nastir as a friend of a friend because year also like conspired <laughs> with the goblin queen is very funny to me. But that's like just a little, that's a little jewel. Toss object. off, little we'll toss off, you don't right. need to know. Right, similarly though, Alex is in a bad place mentally the start of Hellions because of a number of things that happened to him including like the axis inversion and all of that but guess what you don't have to worry about axis you just need to know Alex had a rough time and he's having some mental health issues like that's that's really all you need to know you know don't worry too much about it just know where the character's head is at and with Nanny and Peter I think that what matters is knowing that Peter's power cannot be allowed to get out and that's more important to me than answering it. And I think if you're gonna answer it, you're absolutely right. It has to be a story that's worth it. And it makes sense. The story had, had
0: to take us there. You know? The story did, just didn't end up taking us there, yeah.
1: Mike M writes, hello, Connor and the AC, Mr. Wells. This is a question for Zeb, but obviously lives firmly in Connor's wheelhouse as well. Nanny and the Orphan Maker share a common ground with the majority of the other Hellions characters and that they played a major part in the Inferno event in 1989. Mr. Wells also famously brought back and subsequently slash hilariously doomed the Inferno babies in New Mutants. And even his critically acclaimed Spider-Man arc shed seemingly follows up on one of the tie-in issues from that event, Amazing Spider-Man 313. So what is it about Inferno in specific that makes it such a fertile ground to grow stories from? Why is that high drama tableau such a call to creatives some 30 years later? Thanks for answering my questions. Both of you produced work in these past few years that has absolutely delighted and captured me and made the pandemic that little bit easier. I'm on the edge of my seat for what you each have in store and particularly amazing Spider-Man, despite this not being a Spider-Man podcast. Mike M, probe on the Discord. So obviously, apart from the fact that we both read it at like an impressionable age, what do you think it is about that story that makes you want to go back to it so often? It must be the
0: emotional stakes behind Mm -hmm. it. That we've that we've been exploring. Yeah. I it's do the think biggest that,
1: X-Men story emotionally, I think. Like everyone yeah, is going through hell. You know, <laughs> like, through hell.
0: And yeah. And if you follow
1: the breadcrumbs,
0: this hell is all extrapolated from a personal hell. Yes. A relationship hell. Mm-hmm. You have Cyclops and Jean dealing with their paths through the whole thing. You have Havoc dealing with his brother issues. And then at the very core of it, you have Madeline that is just dealing with
1: all the, the worst big essential questions.
0: Time. And yeah, all the big existential and the questions. big
1: breakup. Like it's both. It's like, yeah. what does it mean to be alive? What is the meaning of my life? Also, I have been rejected more profoundly than I ever thought possible. Right. So, like, great, and all cool. that
0: pain is projected in a way that you can see it. You can and see it. And starts infecting because, every
1: other character. Yes. You know? Yes. To me, it's the most operatic and big, 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 big story. And so there's just an impulse to return to it for that reason. There's also an impulse to return to it because I think with Madeline in particular, there's a sense of the injustice, right? And so with this story, you opened with a real barnstorm of an arc that says basically, yeah, that was super unjust. And I, it makes sense to want explore that with the babies. It's like, what the fuck happened to those babies? That's a question you yeah. can answer. That's like a dangling plot thread that you can pick up, yeah. you know, and to say, oh, what happened to the babies is worse than you could possibly imagine was a great answer to that question. <laughs> So that makes sense to me as a reason to come back to it. I also think it's easier to come back to than some of the other X-Men arcs that are really classic. It's hard to do a Days of Future Past story that feels additive. Yeah. It's hard to do a Dark Phoenix Saga story that feels additive. Those are yeah, very you're specific right. stories Those are a lot of people, and a lot of people have tried to retread them, and it's never been enormously satisfying. I think the most satisfying redo of Phoenix is Grant Morrison's and that's because so many people between Dark Phoenix and Grant Morrison had fussed with Gene and the Phoenix and what it all meant and everything that having Morrison go no Gene is the Phoenix let's fucking do it was yeah. very refreshing right
2: yeah um, yeah yeah
1: yeah similarly Days of Future Past I think the most successful like redo of that is what Hickman just did in Inferno by having Karima Chapandar represent but wait from the sentinel's perspective. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. so like, <laughs> yeah. asking you, like, wait, but like the sentinel didn't ask to be a sentinel. So right. what is that mindset? What is it like to be uh-huh. her? Are those people in the same way that the question of like are mutants people? So that is that's that is again that's adding the ones that I think you can go back to and add things to much more easily are Inferno and Mutant Massacre. Because Mm -hmm. they ask so many big picture thematic philosophical and political questions that are not specifically tied to like one characters experience or to one specific plot unfolding. Because Inferno touches them all. I mean, they say that many times throughout the story. It's like no one comes out of the Inferno unscathed. Even Colossus, whose moral goodness makes him immune to the corrupting influence of Limbo, is left devastated by everything that happens with iliana throughout Inferno. You know, like the, there's no yeah. one can get out without the stain on that. And those are the stories. Mutant Massacre is what turns X-Men from a superhero comic into, I think, the comic that... Is to me the greatest superhero comic, and it's because after the X Men experience mutant massacre, like they can never go back to yeah. adventures in the Blackbird fighting the Brotherhood. Right. <laughs> right? It's like, right. well, we just witnessed a genocide that we failed to prevent, and like they're like you can't, you just can't come back. So I think that there's an appeal to looking back at those stories and saying what do those stories that said so much about humanity in the genre what can they say about it now
0: absolutely and then you take those strong themes and add just such strong visual motifs and Mm -hmm. it's uh it's like catnip yeah
1: yeah you want to go get back in there and explore it the empire state building turned into a demonic spire that ascends into the sky is just fucking cool like it just that works yeah. it's just you can't really yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> mailboxes biting people's hands off yeah know, great. i mean or <clears> when <throat> the
1: the observe the one that this as i have like an eyes thing and the bit where the binoculars like the observation zoom binoculars on the empire state building rip that guy's eyes out and are like my eyes now i'm like holy shit yeah, <laughs> or uh bad. or when iliana kills the barber's chair and she's been trying not to kill because this year's like you're so mine yeah. the minute you killed she's like i can't kill you you're a chair and he's like mm, i'm alive now but i'm not anymore <laughs> dark child master will be pleased it's just like what the fuck is going on you know like yeah that, <laughs> yeah i felt like i was like yeah i think when what, i was 12 what going reading. on yeah, and some a
0: part of you wants to get back in there and be like, "What is going on? What was what going, was going on? on? And what is what now going, going on? on? Let's figure it out."
1: Because the thing about the sliding time skipping, one of the funniest things about that Inferno Baby story is that, be, like, the way Marvel time functions, you had to say at one point in the story, "You're like." About four years ago, Manhattan was, you know, which I shouldn't have
0: done. I should have left it. You know, I should have just left it. I think
1: the vibe now that's really smart is when it's just like some time ago. And then you just, that's how we should be doing things. You just have the visuals, like the fashion and stuff signify how many decades ago this was, even if in the story we can't say Teeny has in the Excalibur story with Betsy and kind of Malice refers to their decades of mass. Now, of course, if we think about it logically, Betsy can only have been in Kanon's body for like three years. But that doesn't make any sense. Right. So like because right, right. the mm-hmm. weight of the publication was 30 years, which is why I loved in yeah. Murder World how you had Kanon get an opportunity to like fight that fight for decades. Right. Because yeah, that's yeah. the only way to process that is like, yeah, it was 30 years. So like let me fight for 30 well, years. Like, yeah, the fight yeah, yeah. of who owns this body, who owns, like, being Psylocke, who owns this ninja bathing suit. Let her fight it for 30 years, even if in the story... Really get it back. out of her system. Yeah, that's one of the best lines, too, when Grey Crow's like, so you and Braddock are cool now? And she's like, yeah, you know, we understand each other. Also, I killed her in a dream for 30 years, so that helps. Yeah. <laughs> that's because it would, you know? Yeah. Chauncey Deerfield writes, Hi Connor and Zeb, I'm a recent serial listener already loving it a lot. Thank you Connor for making such a fun podcast with my favorite group of heroes and general misfits and thank you Zeb for writing such an enjoyable comic. I wasn't familiar with Nanny and the Orphan Maker prior to Hellions but I was surprised by how much I came to love and care for them along with the other characters. The dynamic between these two really piqued my interest. Peter's reliance on Nanny and her constant coddling of him until their deaths in Ammons and the change in their relationship. It seemed like such a huge turning point for the two and Peter especially. I was much too surprised, deeply sad whenever Nanny would push Peter away but their reconciliation in the end was a sweet <clears throat> moment. My question is, if they're ever brought back from Cricot and Exile in the Pit, how would you like to see their relationship explored now that they're so different from when they started? Do you think Peter would go back to constantly relying on Nanny or would Nanny try and push Peter into having some independence? Also, what music do you think Peter's listening to now that he's in his rebellious teen phase? For me, Raging Against the Machine and Paramore are definitely at the top of his Spotify repeat. <laughs> Two questions <are> there. <laughs> Paramore is a good shout, I think. I could absolutely see... Especially because, like, they have like an evangelical Christiany vibe, don't they? Like when they start, yeah, yeah, so I yeah. feel like <laughs> yeah. that, like so escaping Nanny from that. Is, it. <laughs> yeah, well, and so it might be like I'm breaking away, like just like the lady from Power. Oh right. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'll,
0: I'll I'll let's just say it's those two bands. That's great. I think yeah, that's great. great.
1: With regard to how their relationship could evolve, I mean, I think they are paired characters, and it's with those characters, it's impossible to really ever fully break them apart. It is a sweet moment at the end because you see the depth of her caring. But as we illustrated earlier, it's also poisonous, right? Because it's, yeah. they, they can't, they won't. like they, they simply can't separate themselves. So I don't think they would. But, you know, I mean, yeah. what do you think, Zeb? And obviously like a writer could take this in any direction, but. Of course, yeah. I'm keen to see them turn up in Sabretooth as that book gets closer to the present, as Victor implied. For the, sure. The, the other characters who've gone down the pit in the time since will turn out we'll as show that up. book continues yeah
0: yeah I think it depends on what the writer wants to explore I think there's still fun in the stasis of it and there's still stuff you could explore there but then you might try to find a way for that to force them to separate that would be a mm-hmm. fun way to explore but I do think the nanny orphan maker cycle is always would always be them splitting apart but then coming back together like yeah, the metaphor yeah. of his
1: stunted growth because his power is so dangerous that we're keeping him stunted we're keeping is him also stunted, their yeah. relationship, you know? Like, she can't, she won't let him age too far. Amonth was. mean when you say like one thing to do is you as a writer is you force the character to do what they don't want to do the Amonth resurrection was a way to force those characters it made her less maternal and it made him yeah more mature and that was a way to force them apart but by the end she's been re-resurrected into like regular nanny yeah but still like even he in his like I'm older now mode he can't he needs his nanny still.
0: Yeah, it was a way to show, to force them apart as a way to show the gravity of, of the what like they have. The to show that like okay yeah of it
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: they okay you force them apart but nope sorry that gravity they won't let you they just won't strong. let you do yeah. it yeah. And the
1: character gravity. Joe Dunford writes, Hi, Connor and Zeb. We got a good but mysterious explanation of why Orphan Maker has to be resurrected in his cyborg suit. But why do you think Nanny has kept her egg form? Does she consider it superior to her original body or is it just more familiar to her An Orphan Maker? I'm interested yeah, in your thoughts and then I... You know.
0: I think it really does speak to the way she's gone as a person, which is choosing security above all else. So Mm -hmm. this suit has become her security blanket. So it's another tragedy that she does not want to be vulnerable in that way. She will choose this quote unquote comfort, because whenever we choose comfort, we're not really choosing comfort. We're choosing to not grow. We're choosing a comfort that will hurt us in the long run. And so that that is her, that's a visual way to show that with her that she is choosing this sickening warmth just as Orson maker is choosing the warmth of your mother taking care of you but what it's doing is it's stunting you and this is stunting her and i think even her ex-husband calls that out at one point he's like my god I, the mm-hmm. fact that you're still wearing that costume what what is wrong with you what type of person are you
1: well because again they put her in it to punish her
0: yeah and now she won't and she's it choosing her punishment because right. it's safer
1: Yeah. And I I think that that's really powerful. I also think what Nanny looks like is another question that I think is better not answered. Right. Yes, absolutely. Unless a story really justified it. But to me, it's more interesting if the question mark is there. I assume she's a little person because she's only like three feet tall, but that's the only identifying characteristic that we've ever really been given for her. I don't really want to know what Nanny's face looks like. Because to me, like, the egg is Nanny's face. I mean, one of my my favorite gags was when she resurrected and she was still wearing the resurrection egg because she just, like, no no one (laughs) can look at me, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I... My dream would be that people hear their own mother (laughs) coming out of
1: Right, like, your mom could be in there. You don't know what Nanny looks like. I think that that... And the
0: scariest version of your mom. Yeah, she's
1: she's mythic in part because she could be anyone. Yeah. So you're right.
0: Maybe there's a story out there that would get a lot of juice and would be a perfect reveal of who she is. But I I never found that, you know, Mm -hmm. that never presented itself. So I thought the mythic value of her was more important.
1: Yeah, I think that was a smart choice. Christian Smith writes, congrats on 75 episodes. I was trying to come up with a hard-hitting and important question, something about the true identities of Nanny and Peter. But honestly, what I really want to know in my heart of hearts is what would Nanny have worn to the Hellfire Gala if she were invited? And would it make her look like an Easter egg? Yeah, I think. That's the I mean, that's, that, I was yeah, that's, thinking like a Faberge kind of look. Would yeah, really Faberge, fun.
0: that's it. Like some be- bejeweling.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if she ever gets out of the pit and gets to go to a gala, I would love to see her like really bejeweled. Yeah. And like Faberge egg finery. I think that would be really cute. But an Easter egg look would also be very cute. I feel like the Hellfire Gala in June, it's like Easter is more of a spring theme, is the thing, you know? But we'd have yeah, to. Remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Graham Aggie writes, hi, Connor and esteemed Mr. Zab. As someone who dived headfirst into the X-Men after reading Hox Pox, I was drawn to Hellions through name recognition. I'd read Carnage USA and New Ways to Live in my comics infancy, and you were one of the first comics writers, Zeb, whose name really stuck with me, both for how unique your storytelling is, but also for how you give typically unsympathetic characters sympathetic storylines. I'm about to get to your pretty well-regarded run of New Mutants, which I've discovered through the podcast and I'm coming up to in my reading list of 2010's X-Men books. With all that out of the way, my questions are these. One, when fake Cameron Hodge showed up in Hellions, I anticipated that we were eventually going to see the return of real Cameron Hodge, either through AI or occult means. Could Cameron Hodge, the real one, find his way back? And if so, do you think Orcus would set him up? Two, I was going to ask if you could tell us anything about Orphan Maker's power, but I'm sure somebody already asked. So to spice it up, my actual question is this. Does Nanny sweat inside her metal egg suit? Connor, thank you for the podcast. Thank you for the community in the Discord. Even though I'm a boring flat scan, I still can't help but feel like I'm real life friends with everyone, even you. Thank you both so much. Congrats, Zeb, on the Spider-Man gig. That's huge. Fidel Cashflow in the Discord. 914 Transplant Gang. Peace emoji. We are both from Westchester (laughs) County, me and and this listener. We can't really answer the Cameron Hodge question because that's like a plot question that another writer could pick up or something that Zeb could write in the future or like, frankly, I mean... Pipe Dream, I I would die to write a Cameron Hodge story. But here's the answer, though, I think, as far as it can be answered. You can't kill Cameron Hodge. That's the whole point. Right. Right. He sacrificed Candy Southern on the altar to make a pact with the steer to make himself immortal forever to the point where he became a spooky head on a robot body with a cardboard suit cut out hanging in front, you can't kill him. So you can't kill him. He'll always come back because you simply, you can't kill that kind of hatred. It just festers and comes back is I think the point of Cameron Hodge. So yeah. um, I'm so sure like we will see him t- again.
0: What kind of vessel do you
1: want to bring him back in or what kind right. of story is that? Like, it yeah, needs to this- be a story that makes sense. Yeah. And here, I thought it was good that he wasn't the real Cameron because I think that would have overshadowed a lot of the other stuff going on. But the threat of him reminds you of how terrible the right as an organization is. Yeah, which is important to Nanny's storyline and helps under like because like the smiley AI stuff. Those things are horrifying. If you go back to the classic yeah. material, so like yeah. Nanny having the baby one, like the baby robot turning out to still be bent on destruction of mutants you have to remember these are Cameron Hodge's robots like it's a yes. it, it helps <clears throat> remind you of the context for these things and even then was it still wrong to genocide the nascent ai probably yeah yeah
0: you yeah. know <laughs>
1: but It's like, well, it's the Sabretooth question. It's like, well, Sabretooth's the worst of the worst. Should we lock him in a solitary confinement hellscape? Probably not, you know? But yeah, yeah. And that I think is valuable. So I assume that's why Cameron came. Do you think Nanny uh, sweats in her egg suit? I feel like it's like an astronaut kind of thing where it's like the homeostasis within the suit has been designed, right?
0: Yeah, I have to believe. That she that that's been worked out like if mm-hmm. you're going to lock someone in a suit. I think that the technology is there to get some air air circulation. Going, Certainly, by the time she put herself
1: back in, it, yeah, yeah, I would yeah, assume yeah. that she accommodated yeah. for that, you know,
0: for sure. Because otherwise, it sure. would smell
1: pretty bad in the egg soup Yeah, I can't. I
0: just can't I, live in a world where she's where she
1: hasn't figured that out. No, and I feel like she. I imagine nanny always having like a very floral kind of cloying perfume kind of going on. Yeah, <laughs> she also like she's a low level telepath, and so she uses she calls it her pixie dust like to. So she's dosing people to begin with, with like pheromones and things all the time. So I feel like to me, she walks by, and it's like the whole Chanel counter like is happening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you yeah. Know?
0: no, that's great. Yep. And
1: so I'm sure that she has figured out a way to make everything really clean and hygienic because also like nanny wouldn't let you not be clean. Like nanny makes you wash behind your ears. Like it's that kind of absolutely. You know, Rich Kaminsky writes, Dear Connor an esteemed guest, Mr. Wells, thank you, Connor, for all the great work you do when I found Cerebro randomly. I can't remember how for the life of me this past summer before the end of season one. I couldn't have imagined how quickly and deeply you and your guests would change my experience and appreciation for these books. I've always loved the X-Men, but as a flat scan, learning from so many people with so many experiences I'll never know proved just how impactful and special this band of misfit toys really is. It's sad that those voices aren't as deeply embedded in all the mainstream comics conversations as they should be, although that's changing. So thank you and all of your guests for putting yourselves out there and helping make a positive of in this world that means so much to all of us. Thank you. That's enormously sweet. You know, I started this just for fun, but the fact that I've been able to provide a platform for a lot of people to talk about their experiences that I don't understand as trans people, people of color, people with disabilities, like lots of things that these books can really speak to. uh, That's been a really, a real blessing. Flat scans, by the way, Zab, is someone who doesn't listen to the podcast. He's my, it's what I refer to the straight cis listeners. It's it's affectionate, Um, but like- (laughs) this had straight guys like listening to the podcast. I'm like, I love my flat scan listeners. You guys are the best. Because <laughs> listen, I mean, this is a real queer podcast. So the, yeah, the flat yeah. scans who hang in there and are just like, yes, like, let's speculate about like whether Banshee has ever hooked up with a guy. Like, let's do that for 20 minutes. Sure. Why not? Like, I'll, I'm on this ride. Okay, now to the guest of honor. Admittedly, I was a comics fan that didn't really pay much attention to specific writers. Instead, diving back into X comics by focusing on arcs or series based around characters. That all changed with the Krakoa era, where besides Hickman, the name Zeb Wells has kept standing out. Lo and behold, I've been amazed to learn the history but that the same Zeb Wells was responsible for the New Mutants run I devoured when Dawn of X was going through COVID delays. The run that gave me back the fantastically powerful Magic and Legion. Thank you, Zeb, for doing that and doing so in such a powerful and moving story. I've noticed, in an interesting thread where you explore extremely powerful characters from such unique angles. Aside from magic and legion, you gifted us an Omega version of Sinister in the genomic mage Tarn the Uncaring and hinted at Orphan Maker's cataclysmic mutant gift. Instead of giving him super strength or heightened senses or anything else that could fit with arrested development, you contrast his naivete with a gift that even the Quiet Council fears. What is it about these highly powered, highly dangerous characters that interests you? And how do you make sure that you're approaching them from an unexpected angle that doesn't undercut their power, but also doesn't stack the deck so high that only a deus ex machina could solve the day? I also love learning about the creative process and we know the Krakoa era is highly collaborative. So any insight into the creation of Tarn and his locust vial would be greatly appreciated until the uncaring God has grown tired of his perversions at the infants come, make mine Cerebro, Rich RK on Twitter. Those are some of the best scary new villains anybody's introduced in quite some time. I really, that is, they're so gross. Like just the way they speak. I was talking to Ariana Mar about like the sound effect lettering. She does like the noises that the fish blade things make are so
0: horrible. A fantastic letter, by the way. She's the best in the biz right now, I think. Yeah. So, great question, and thank you for the compliments. Everyone's compliments on the questions. That's very special to hear that my name sticks out, because I think all comic book fans remember that moment where they... Re- realize that they like that like the yeah they on- put something yeah, together. Oh, like the- I
1: liked all those stories oh it's one person I didn't realize someone yeah. wrote those
0: yeah so that's special to hear that, that I happened. told Fabian, Fabian that he
1: was one of the first people I noticed that about Fabian Niciasa just because his name stands out on a cover yeah like it's not Smith right so I'm just like Niciasa you know like, yeah, like yeah. Devin or whatever <laughs> what is yeah. that so and his you know, stuff
0: always had a humor to it that, that was great. That, and
1: such a like talk about Bombast. He really he plays yeah, that yeah. Claremont torch in a lot of ways. Yes. Like, so his all of his stuff with Kanon is really gorgeous. All of the the stuff where she realizes who she is and when she dies of legacy and all that. Like it's just the way that it all plays out is like, oh my God, like the drama. And that is excellent to me. So what what are your thoughts on writing these very powerful characters? And why is that something that interests you?
0: With the X-Men and then maybe just how growing up, my own struggles growing up or, and everyone's struggles, there's these things that, that separate you from other people and how painful that can be. And I think the big powerful characters also seem to have like a, a hefty amount of trauma. And I think trauma is like the interesting thing about the human condition and, and what makes people interesting is just our traumas are so informative to how we relate to people. And then you add so much power and the the power to like have your trauma affect reality in Legion's case and have Mm -hmm. it affect his mind. It's just, too. I don't know. There's something about it that just draws me to it. Like, that's why Eliana became such a interesting anchor character for that whole book was just the fact that she had been through so much, so much pain. Like, who would she trust? Like, would she trust anyone to take care of her. I don't think she would. Right. So why? No one's ever taken care player. of her. She was no six when she fell into hell. Yeah. And I relate to her. I don't see that at making her villainous. I just see that as a human being trying to take care of themselves. That's what a lot of villains are. Human beings trying to take care of themselves in a dysfunctional way.
1: One of my favorite things about that New Mutants run is that in the resolution of that arc, Ilyana gets her soul back in whatever sense that means but that's before the scene with Sean where she's like fuck with me and I will end you like you know you don't want to ruin his life by telling him that I'm a monster do you you know yeah yeah because even with your soul you're still a person, and You're still a person. Ilyana doesn't regret any really any of this, except for what she did to Pixie. So she's like, "Let me make that up to you." Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, yeah.
0: it's like because that, that mirrored what was done that, to her. Because that she that's close,
1: that's like. a hurt people hurt people thing. Like she's like, yeah. "I became an abuser of you in the way yeah. that I was abused." It's certain senses, there's other yeah. implications as to what Blasco did to her that certainly are not repeated with Pixie. But in terms of like, I corrupted your soul for my own gain, like, okay, my bad, let me fix that. But otherwise it's yeah. like, yeah, well, needs must. Like you do what you gotta do and you live with it. You and do I what you gotta it, do. I think that that is also the key with Legion who's someone who very often doesn't have agency over his own actions because his mind was so fractured. And I think that your run really teed up Cy Spurrier's legacy run with him, which is to me like the definitive Legion story. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the question was able to be asked because you had posed it. You know what I mean? Like, so I think that yeah. it's sometimes, much like I said, like, I think that Marjorie Lou really dug into karma in and we way nobody had, but it was your run that said, like, karma's cool. Why don't we do, why doesn't someone do something yeah, with karma? Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I, so sometimes that's, what it takes is someone just sort of saying like, well, but okay. Like why, what is it about this guy? And with Nanny and the orphan maker, it's certainly like, why, why is this here? Yeah. What can we do with it? To talk about a new powerful character? What was it that went into the creation of Tarn and his locust vial and all of that? Cause they're certainly, they're big fan favorites already. Like everybody loves those characters.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad because it was a lot of work. I, it was a lot of thinking it through. And again, the idea being that oh i am playing in hickman's x-men world there is no half stepping here mm-hmm. there is no and so so then you start and just there have been a lot of comics and a lot of comic book characters so trying to find an in or an angle right. to these characters that would give them a little a feeling that maybe other characters didn't have and so I started thinking about how do you make them creepy? I started thinking about like 80s horror movies
1: and yeah. how do we, you know, it's like- It's very Hellraiser. Like there's a very- Very like Hellraiser, yes. Clive Barker vibe to them. Yep. In a great absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Trying to get that energy. And the reason I say it was a lot of work is I worked on that data page that explained their powers and who they were for days like hours hours just like pouring over just the language of it to try to make the language creepy enough so when you saw the characters and then read the data page you were like okay something weird and unsettling is happening here so that's what it was just how unsettling could we be and there's something so unsettling about talking about uh, mothers who have mm-hmm. who who don't want the best for you also like doctors or medical yes. like we, oh, here's a guy. That's part like of the horror X. of
1: Sinister, too. Is like yeah. Dr. Milbury, the obstetrician gynecologist, is like the scariest sinister identity to me because that's so gross to think about. But also, yeah the second scariest is the director of the orphanage, right? Like that. Like yes. Who's sister, supposed to be taking care of these people, right? Like the idea of the caretaker. And so, yeah, Tarn as like a professor Xavier type who's assembled this little team of X-Men, but they're all people who's it's actually takes me back. i mentioned this on the, the podcast before there was this fanfic, like, 20 years ago that I read as on the early that was called X-Manson, like X-Mansion that was about uh, Charles Xavier as a cult. It was like done as like a, a doc yeah. as like a documentary script. And it was yep, really yeah. scary. And it's because it's that notion of like it doesn't take much to twist that. I mean, that's Doom Patrol, also, right? Is like Niles called. Yep. I mean, that those two books launch at the same time, and as Doom Patrol evolves for X-Men fans, like, you think Charles Xavier is, like, a bad dad? Like, Niles Calder went into it, like, I'm going to manipulate all of these people into becoming soldiers through me. Yeah. Like, very specifically. And there's yeah. something very disquieting about that revelation, which is why I think so many writers have been tempted to do it with Charles Xavier to sometimes yes. great success and other times to less great success. The Krakoan project, in a lot of ways, is about saying, like, okay, if Charles and Eric and Moira are our parents... Do they love us?
0: Are they good parents? Are they good?
1: Are they good parents? Are they good people? Tarn, to me, definitely felt... I mean, one thing I will say is the work that you did, world building, all of that, it was worth it because... It's shocking that they're new. I mean, like they feel very much like they emerged fully formed, they've always been here. It's a lot like the work that Teenie did in other worlds. All of those new realms of other worlds yeah. feel like oh, they've been yeah. around forever. And totally. when I tell people, no, those are brand new as of 2019, that shocks them. Yeah. I'm like, no, it was just Avalon. The other nine are brand yeah. new. Like <laughs> people are like, wow. And I think this
0: dovetails into the other part of the question, which was the collaborative process i think that came from i'm sure you've heard about the x slack yeah like the x slack is huge it was a huge huge part of all of this and it was the pandemic was a huge huge part of all of this because Mm -hmm. not only was the x slack going but suddenly the work we were all doing on this world became an outlet and a social outlet yes it became something we looked forward to like oh what, what is this idea? What is this idea? And I, I'm with you. When those, when, when they came up with those sections of other world, I was like, Oh my God, this is so good. And it suggests like years and years of stories that can be. Told well, that's the thing in, in T- there, which is so. Katie was like, I
1: wanted to create worlds that anybody could play in someday long after I'm done writing this stuff.
0: Yeah. And she nailed it. And so that energy is taken into creating the locust file. It's like, well, I don't, Look at all the creative energy in this room. Look at everything that they're doing, the world building. If I'm going to add a piece to this puzzle, I cannot half-step it. I need to sit here and stare at this computer screen until it's right, until I feel like Mm -hmm. it's made it. And so I owe all of the Hellions to also this community that was built during a very hard part of everyone's lives and this uh, bright spot that was created with the X-Lax under the guidance of Hickman and then the guidance of the editors and Teeny, doing all of that other world stuff and everyone coming in with their own takes. It was just a very special time in my creative life being I around say, all these
1: people. I have to say Ten of Swords, as like just a reader, having multiple chapters of that. I mean, the fact that it got so big, which was because of the pandemic because Marvel was like, we need this event to run longer. Can you guys do twice as much? <laughs> and yeah. the the fact that every week there were like three new chapters of this really cohesive collaborative X-Men event that I could talk about with all my friends, that was huge for like two months or whatever there. It was like very yeah. much, it, it was a thing that, so I'm glad that the collaborative process was also sustaining in that way, because for yeah, a lot and of us, I wish, it was really- I, I, I wish that we could,
0: Go back and someone someday will publish like the, uh, the call to arms messages <laughs> on the X slack yeah. that, that Jonathan would post. Because at the time we didn't know if there would be a comic book industry. Right. Come back to a lot of people thought that this was it. This was yeah. it. the comic book stores would close. It's over. We were done game over. And so there was this feeling that Jonathan was like, put it all into this story. Don't leave this story anything for later. Be- yeah. yeah. This has got to be great. This has got to be great. You have got to try your hardest. And, and they were like, a, they were these awesome messages that were like, this is pretend that the entire comic book industry is on your back right now and write the hell out of this thing. If yeah. this event and
1: flops, so, Marvel Comics is fucked. Yeah. Yeah. This might Period. be it. This, might be our this last could be day. it. Yeah, and guess what? It was a massive hit. I mean, like, that's the thing that is really... I've said this to, to bring it back to Inferno. I think Ten of Swords is the best X-Men franchise-wide event since Inferno. Oh, I love that. I mean, I know. We, uh, we were
0: all trying. We all tried our hardest. I the only that.
1: things I think compete are, like, the original Age of Apocalypse, but that's just so different because it's not even our characters, right? And yeah. then Messiah Complex is great, but I don't think it's... Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just it, that's yeah. just a really but that's just like a very tight action story in terms of the grand scale that it, you know, Inferno and Ten of Swords both transport you completely make these characters into something new take them outside of their comfort zone by the end, you're like jaw is dropping all the time and the artists all did such incredible work as well like it's just it I have the hardcover sitting here and it reads so well now, like as a novel, like graphic novel is a term that we throw around a lot now, but like the work that you all put into that, especially given that it is like an exquisite corpse round robin kind of thing with everybody writing these individual chapters, it reads so cohesively and so on. It shows just how much you were all working together. I mean, that's why like, again, Amazing Spider-Man is one of the biggest gigs in the industry, and I'm absolutely thrilled for you. But I was furious that the spider people took Zab Wells from me. I was like, no, yeah. I refuse. I know it was supposed to be mine forever. So
0: but it was Spider-Man with John Ramita Jr. My hands you were tight. No. Hand, I, I, I get it. I get
1: it. I get I hope that we'll get you dipping back in for a mini or something here or there. I think that would be fun. You, yeah, you have such I, a I singular love, voice.
0: I love it everyone in that office so much and we'll get back there as, as soon as I can, for
1: sure. <laughs> I, I bet. Eugenia Monserrat-Pinson-Balam writes, I always say her full name when she writes in because I think <laughs> it's the best name ever in terms of people who have written into this podcast hello connor distinguished guest hope you're having a great time they're not exactly well known before mr wells and Company's run on hellions nanny and the orphan maker have been cult favorite villains and have appeared in more stories than other villains from that period like say the animator what do you think are the factors in their staying power the cool code names their designs or what thanks a lot to both of you for all the work you put in and wishing you success in your future projects and or your deserved vacations best wishes. Best which is Eugenia Pinson, a.k.a. Asimov Fangirl. P.S. Connor, if there's time, please show Mr. Wells the nanny drawing I commissioned from Adam Reck a year ago. I will send this to you in the chat. This is great. Zach Jenkins showed it to Chris Claremont recently, and he was just like, what on earth is this? <laughs> <laughs> but it's only natural, I think, to it's the okay, uh, people. Okay, let's see this. Uh, <laughs> I think once she had lips, doing her literally as Fran Drescher and the Nanny was Yeah, funny. you had to. Yeah, had to at least once. What do you think it is about Nanny and the Earthmaker? I think it's like they're so fucking weird that it's like you can yeah. just throw them on a page and it's like, oh, it's those two because yeah, your nobody else looks like that. Be...
0: No, your eye will be pulled to those two characters and you'll <laughs> want to know what the hell is going on. And I'd love to know, did you talk to Weezy about those
1: characters. I haven't ever much, I haven't she... gotten a chance to talk to Weezy. That I okay. that was I was referring to an interview that Chris Hassan did for AIPT's X-Men Monday. Gotcha. Weezy is if you're listening, Ms. Simonson, I would love to chat with you sometime on this show. But no, I've gotten a chance to talk to Annie Nasenti on the show, and I've talked to Chris Claremont offline at cons and stuff. I've actually never met Louise Simonson. She's on she's one of my bucket list chats, but I don't know what her, like, original concept and stuff were. That's something I'll ask her at some point when I get her on for, like, Rusty Collins or whoever it would be. (laughs) We talk Birdbrain, Gossamer. I'm like, we'll find somebody. But uh, with the really legendary creators, I try to pick someone obscure because I don't want them to feel like they have to read, like, 30 years of Of stories to talk about their run. But yeah, I think it's the look. I think that also it's that the concept is so creepy that you can just throw them in there. And I do think that part of what kept them going was that Lobdell used them in Generation X in the 90s. Yeah. Because of the concept, they're a natural villain to throw against your kid heroes. Like they yeah. were scary villains for the exterminators and all of those people, like and Franklin Richards back in the 80s. And they are scary villains for Gen X in the 90s because this stunted maybe teenager in the suit of armor and his like creepy controlling helicopter mom are just very, especially with Gen X, which is so much about like, mom and dad can't tell me what to do. I'm a 90s kid. Like that's sort of the vibe of that book. So the creepy like-
0: Yeah, it's a 40s good uh, juxtaposition. lullaby sure.
1: like movie thing of them
0: the art the, the Liefeld version you know just seeing Liefeld draw them was a lot of fun back in the day and they were just around during a really cool time
1: yeah and I also think because that's when Claremont and Simonson were pushed out there is a sense that the characters were never completed like they never yes, got their yes arcs.
0: their story was never arc. yeah their story was never arc you felt like yeah. there was something there that was trying There's to be still something there, there to it. like
1: tell that was never told, yeah, which I think absolutely. is appealing to writers who were picking them up after that. Um, yep. As opposed to, of course, Zaladane, mascot of this podcast who Chris Claremont put a real cap on right before he walked out the door. I was actually just going to check how many Zaladanes Nanny has. Zaladane has become a unit of measurement on this podcast. It's 12 issues <laughs> because that's the number of issues that Zaladane has appeared in. The fans were just really tickled by the Chris Claremont decision that this witch named Zaladane has to be Lorna Dane's sister because that's how names work. And I love that kind of Chris Claremont galaxy brain mm-hmm. myself. Nanny, complete yeah. Marvel reading order. I'm looking at Travis Starns, He always knows. Yeah, she's only got three Zaladanes, guys. So this is a character. Wow. That has 37 appearances. And at this point, the majority, like in terms of ongoing stuff, the majority of those are in Hellions like it's really you, yeah it was funny when we were talking before the recording. Zeb was like should I go back and read every appearance like do I need to be a nanny and orphan maker expert and I was like Zeb you are a nanny and orphan maker expert. <laughs> written over a third of their appearances at this point <laughs> so you know it's funny how they still feel so essential and I think it's because they're so iconic yeah Riley Gillard writes, Hey, Connor and esteemed guests. I'm Grimoire Riley on the Discord. Long time listener, first time writing in because I couldn't miss my chance to ask about my favorite comic series of all time, Hellions. No need to worry about an accent to read in, Connor. I also grew up in New York. (laughs) Thank you for the long episodes. They help keep my ADHD in check at work. Well, you're welcome. I can't help myself. Now onto Hellions. First of all, Zeb, that first issue released at the perfect time. I can't say just how many times I reread it in the early months of the pandemic. And issue 18 felt like such a perfect way to cap it all off, paralleling the opening so beautifully. While I have a few questions about the series as a whole, I decided the most pressing issue is about Nanny and Orphan Maker in issue one. What tune is Nanny's lullaby sung to? You know, the one that goes, drink, drink from Nanny.
0: <laughs> okay. Let me- let me see if I can find it and see if I I, I, can, I can't I actually, do this.
1: I I have it. I can. Here, let me.
0: Okay. I want to look at it and see if, if I can tap into what I was thinking. And and keep in mind, I can't sing and I can't write songs. So this was just what was in my head.
1: I sing. So why don't you give it a shot? And then I'll see if I can okay. make, make something pretty out of it. Great,
0: you know? great. Okay, here we go. Okay. <laughs> That's right, right. Better is it? The fire is hot, the orphans are made, rest your pretty head. We both know what come next when all bad parents lay dead. Drink, drink from nanny, wet your thirsty tongue. Drink, drink from nanny, then
1: we free the young. <laughs> Drink from nanny. There's it's been really it's, great. There are yes. so many yes. ways yes. you great. could go. No, that's really, great. I love that. Like I do hear it in my head as like very like Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins, like yes. singing to the kids. Drink, drink from nanny. Like all of that. Yeah. A spoonful yeah. of a spoonful of nanny milk makes the medicine go down <laughs> kind of vibe.
0: I would but, not sneeze at a full rendition from you, Connor. Maybe he could I mean, be something me, you add to okay. the end. Or...
1: No, let me uh let me try. Let me see if The fire is hot, the orphans are made, rest your pretty head. We both know what comes next when all bad parents lay dead. And that's when Hank and Warren look at each other. (laughs) (laughs) Drink, drink from nanny, wet your thirsty tongue. Drink, drink from nanny, then we free the young. And then she embraces him and he feels comforted the orphans are made is such a great, it's sentence. such terrible. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. horrible.
2: <laughs> <And> the phrase <laughs> drink like from nanny.
1: I screamed. That was one that I posted on Twitter. I was like, drink from nanny is the worst sentence. I've It's ever
0: the worst. Read. It's the worst.
1: <laughs> it's and so I don't bad.
0: I don't want people that I don't know if I'm suggesting that actually happens. Like she still nurses him. But no, I want the suggestion but... to be like, well, yeah, because it's, it's something like, it's, creepy going exactly. on. Exactly. She's at least thinking about she at least thinks that's okay to to say. bring up. To right. say yeah, that's an okay exactly. thing to say.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Spencer Graham writes, hello, esteemed host and the only Cerebro guest to be yelled at on camera by George Lucas. For Zeb, <laughs> given that you've recently written for both Ben Riley and Madeline Pryor, what are your thoughts on them possibly getting together? A mad cartoonist on Twitter turned me on to the idea, and I felt this was a good time to ask, infernally, perb on the Discord. Max on Twitter also put this in my head, and I'm now desperate to write the blind date. What are your thoughts, Zeb, on that potential clone love connection?
0: No comment.
1: That's all she wrote for now. Anyway, I will say she does enjoy a younger brother who's blonde and insecure.
0: Yes, I can say no more, but check out free comic book day is what I will say.
1: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, that's exciting. Last question, Claire Woodbury writes, Hello, Connor and esteemed guest. Congratulations on the season two exclamation point finale of Cerebro. As a casual X-Men fan, I've really enjoyed learning more about my favorite characters and characters I've never heard of before, like Strife. That is one of the best episodes. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Tony and Tony Oliveira just awesome. long on Strife, which is always just a funny time. The character files are particularly helpful to me for backstory and knowing what to focus on and what not to worry about. You should put Don't Worry About It on some merch. Well, Claire, actually, there is a shirt that says DWAI in CrickHowan on the Cerebro store to slash slash Cerebro if you would like to pick that up. You have to know, but if someone asks you what it says, you can say Don't Worry About It, which is kind of fun, right? My question for you is this. Cerebro episodes tend to be titled based on each character's human name, with some exceptions. Which mutants do you think really feel that they're still represented by their name given at birth? And which have had their identity more solely wrapped up in their chosen mutant moniker? Is the shedding of their original name or continued wish to be called by it representative of how they feel about their own mutant status? Or is their X-Men name just really freaking cool so they want to keep it? Appreciate the thoughtfulness and humor that go into all your episodes. All the best. Claire Woodbury, Winnipeg, Manitoba. So Nanny and the Orphan Maker are definitely characters where... Like it feels weird. To, I'm gonna call the episode Eleanor Merchant Peter because that is the name scheme of the episode. But people can be like, "Who the fuck is that?" I'm gonna be like, "It's Nanny and the Earthmaker." Rogue was the one where I really had to like. I, I called it Anna Marie, but it hurt to do it because her name is Rogue, and that's the, the name yeah. that he uses. My thing usually that I do is. It's not their birth name, it's the name that they use. And Rogue is referred to by enough characters now as Anna Marie that it didn't feel like disrespectful. The other weird one was Tessa because she calls herself Sage pretty emphatically. But I wanted to call the episode Tessa because the point of that episode was to explain for new readers who don't understand the complicated retcon that Chris Claremont did there, who she is and what her significance to the franchise is. Otherwise, like I didn't call the Magneto episode Max Eisenhart, and I called the Wolverine episode Logan, not James Howlett, because as we said earlier, fuck that. I don't care. His name is Logan, right? What I think is most interesting is when it is, yeah, an expression of how the person views themselves. For example, Trinary more recently is a character who has pretty emphatically, we now know her real name is Shilpa Khatri, but she rejected it because her family rejected her. And she's embraced her mutanthood more than she has the name that she had before. Nanny, I think similarly is a character who, the woman she was before she was put in that egg no longer exists as far as she's concerned, right? Like there is only Nanny.
0: Yeah. That's her full identity right now.
1: So while I'm calling the episode by the name Eleanor Merch, because it's fun that it's been revealed to us, I do think it's important that we still don't know her maiden name. And I doubt that we ever will, right? Because like, it's just, she doesn't care. She doesn't
0: care. Yeah, she doesn't care. And so we don't care.
1: Right. And, like, the contrast to that is, I mean, I think that this was, Al Ewing underlined this really well in Sword. The fact that Fabian Cortez doesn't have a mutant name, despite theoretically being this, like, pro-mutant guy, underlines what a joke he is. Like, he doesn't... Uh he is so hung up on the fact that he is a cortez like of the hernán Cortez's, is sort of the implication by right? like he's yeah, yeah, he yeah. says like yeah. i'm descended from conquistadors like he's yeah, so tied yeah, yeah. up in his human family that whereas emma frost who is also from like a moneyed family she is the white queen even when she isn't at the hellfire club Like she's now given that position to the cuckoos, but she's still going to be the white queen in the data pages and on her stationery. And she was long after she had left the club in the nineties. So I think that for some people embracing, this is the name that I am called because I am a mutant, because I have become something else. It's character motivation. It's character driving. I liked that in picking up Kanan from Fallen Angels, in Fallen Angels initially, Kanon rejects the name Kanon and is like, I'll just be Psylocke. And I liked that in Hellions, you see that perhaps through the journey she had in Fallen Angels, like she's come to say, like, these are both names that I didn't choose, but they're my names. Like, and that she uses yeah, yeah. both of them sort of interchangeably. Because I think a lot of the time X-Men stories are about taking what's... Put- I mean, Psylocke is a name Mojo gave to Betsy. It's not a name that Betsy gave herself either. right. And I think right. that a lot of the time... The point of X-Men is taking something Larry Trask gave Alex that costume with the headpiece that he's still wearing like the, the idea that when you're oppressed a lot of the time it's something people put on you that you own and that you wear proudly and nanny in a twisted way is also that like the right she was having her work on that technology. They found out that she was secretly a mutant when she turned on them and they locked her away in her own machine to make her suffer. She went insane and she's like, well, guess what? Now I am nanny and you're all going to die. And I think that there yeah. is something scary, but also liberating about that, you know?
0: Yeah. If you want a, a hoxpox anecdote, I believe when I, first came on to hellions the idea was going to be trying to just have the mutants use their mutant names their x-men names yes
1: that was initially that was something they were pushing yeah yeah
0: yeah and then just and then you get in there and you start writing it and it for some characters it just doesn't feel right
1: for some characters it simply doesn't work there especially like not to get in a dress course because i like the dress but Calling Jean Marvel Girl now is just hard to do. And if she can't be Phoenix, then she's just going to be Jean. Like you can't, we're not going to, you know, like a lot of the telepath characters, especially characters who've had Phoenix Force stuff or not, like Rachel is another one where they've never managed to make it like this, like prestige. No one calls her that. That's not a name anyone's going to call Rachel. So I think that it became untenable and therefore it becomes more interesting to have it be something characters choose to do or not to do. I liked in uh, Jerry's Marauders, when he had Storm say to Dolores Ramirez, my friends call me Aurora and that's fine. Like I call myself Storm, but it's a political state when I'm doing that. I'm out in the world calling myself Storm because that's my mutant name. And I think that that is powerful and that Nanny is embodying that in her own way because to Nanny, She has made herself mythic. She is the mother who will save the mutant children who are being abused by their parents. That is how she sees it. And so for her, it is a mutant name. It is something she's taken on as a burden and as a purpose. So I think that that's very characterizing of her. The fact that it took 40 years for us to learn her actual human name and we only learned it because her human ex-husband was dismissive of her yeah is i think telling and interesting
2: yeah yeah yeah
1: well zeb is there anything else you'd like to say about hellions before we wrap up this has been i think one of certainly i mean it's my favorite of your work and i've liked a lot of your work but it's just i to me it's one of the best x-men titles i think full stop that there's been well
0: it was such a fun book to work on and i feel like i put a lot of myself into it. So just everyone's questions and the compliments at the beginning of the questions, it, it really does mean a lot. And I, it means a lot that it seems to have connected with so many people that really makes me happy. Cause I think, I don't know, I just put a lot of myself into it. So it's really validating that people were into it for sure. Think- so thank you. Thank everybody. Thank X Twitter. You made the entire 18 issues so much fun. I know I'm not supposed to read that stuff. It's
1: not (laughs) good for you to read it, but you can read it if you
0: want. No, it's not. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's just everyone was so, like, the enthusiasm was just a lot of fun to see and be a part of for 18 months. I don't think
1: there's ever been a response to a single issue on Twitter like the response to the Hellions issue of the Hellfire Gala. It was just everybody was just... every panel like it was just being posed everybody was just having so much fun with that issue and that in part really because nanny coming for sinister judgment day motherfucker, predicting <laughs> this year's summer event who knew that from the mounds of nanny. yeah <laughs> well zab thank you so much for being my guest this was a lot of fun thank you for caving to my relentless bullying uh, of course. and appearing on my show. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and plug anything you want to plug? Obviously, you've got big comics work coming down the pipe.
0: Uh, Amazing Spider-Man. It comes out on 420. A snoochie Love that. or whatever. Yeah, so please give that a shot. I think You know, working with John Romita Jr., it's awesome. I worked on She-Hulk, which is coming out towards the end of the summer, I believe, on Disney+. And working on Marvel Zombies for Disney Plus as well, an animated series that will be out. It's animated, so in a long time.
1: Right. Yeah. It's going to take a minute, but it's (laughs) it's in the, yeah, yeah, it's coming together. What was it like writing for Tatiana Maslani? She's such an exciting actress.
0: Oh, it was so much fun. Yeah. So much fun. She's so awesome. People are going to love her, love it.
1: I'm excited for that. I think it's going to be great. And they can follow you at at Zeb Wells, is my, at Zeb Wells on Twitter. Yep tugboat content nice <laughs> <laughs> i haven't
0: posted a tug in a long time i <laughs> feel like it, you gotta
1: yeah you know but yeah You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes, plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com. Please join the conversation, but don't bring any bad vibes. You can send your questions to Cerebro at CerebroCast at gmail.com. Questions are now open for my season three premiere with Kieran Gillen on Nathaniel Essex, Mr. Sinis, please. I would prefer if we keep it X-Men specific. We just don't have time to get into all of Kieran's other celebrated work. I know that the Young Avengers fans are deeply passionate, but we can't, we can't, we can't open that box. And uh, if we start talking about the Wicked and the Divine, I'll be here for like four hours just doing that. So please try to keep it X-specific. I'm very excited to share season three with all of you. Thank you so much for all of your support. This podcast has changed my life. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. Thank you for being on this journey with me. And uh, if you want more cerebral content during the hiatus. Go to patreon.com slash Cerebrocast for $5 a month at the House of Zaladain tier. You can get an ad-free experience and also the Secret File bonus episodes. During the break, there will be a special bonus going up where Friends of the Pod, Zoe Tanel and Valentine Smith, join me to break down every comic in which Betsy Braddock and Rachel Summers have appeared together ever in advance of Knights of X. So uh, join us for that because that's going to be a fun time, I think. Thank you, as always, for your support. And until next time, everybody, bye.
0: Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for everything. Good
1: chat. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people, mutants led by Magneto, aim to destroy the world.